Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Retro Mecha Podcast. I'm your host here and as always I'm here with Craig. How are you doing Craig? Not too bad bud. Good. Not too bad at all. So here we again in the uh, crazy sort of world events of the coronavirus. So mm. uh, we're maintaining our social distancing across the <laughs> internet. So uh, so we're not breaking uh, any social distancing rules or anything there. So uh, yeah, living in a very crazy period. Um, you certainly are. So this has taken, despite the coronavirus, this has taken much longer than we had planned since uh, yeah, episode six. Yeah. Just sort of life events and, and just stuff mm. going on in both our lives have just... Yes. worked against us really for the last nine months yeah um, it's just been conspiring it has us, just been it? conspiring so <laughs> apologies for the the long delay we've had people sort of asking you know had we disappeared <laughs> and no we haven't we're still alive and kicking and uh we we you know and here we are doing uh our episode seven yeah so, rumors are definitely greatly exaggerated yes <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> So today we're going to do the second part of uh, Macross Retrospective. We're going to look at the uh, OVA. So admittedly, we're doing this um, a little bit out of order because obviously Macross Zero came after Macross 7, um, but it felt in terms of reviewing groups of content, it made sense to review the three OVAs. That Absolutely. being Macross 2, Macross Plus and Macross Zero together. And then <laughs> the next part of our retrospective, we will be doing Macross 7. So we're going to do, we're going to split that up as well. We're going to do Macross 7 plus the bonus episodes. And then the fourth part of the retrospective will be all the um, Macross 7 plus and all the other sort of spin-off films and OVAs that came as part of that series. Mm-hmm. So before we get into our reviews and the main content today, a couple of things I kind of just want to discuss briefly. So, so earlier in the year, I was listening to Anime News Network's Decade in Review. One of the things I found really interesting when they were talking about trends that were in mm-hmm. decline, because they talked about trends that had sort of grown through the sort of uh, 2010s. And then mm-hmm. they talked a bit about trends that were in de- decline and one of the ones that they they said it was sort of clearly in decline through the decade was Mecca. And I, mm-hmm. I certainly felt that. You could certainly see it yeah. trending off. And an interesting point that Mike Tool made, he surmised that part of the decline could be that most of the people that could draw all that Mecca um, through the 90s and maybe through the zeros um, mm-hmm. were either working in video games had either left the industry or possibly my bit on that well they're dead you know so um you know (laughs) maybe maybe those people just maybe it's right maybe that talent for drawing that stuff just isn't there anymore possibly Um, yeah maybe the talent pool has dried up considerably i mean i hadn't actually thought of that to be honest with you and that regard i didn't listen to that episode um of ann yet but uh yeah that's a really good point actually yeah because if you think about it i mean it was the the mainstay and outside a lot of big studios, you know, they're you know, you're still getting your, your Gundams, mm-hmm. you're still getting the Macrosses um, and stuff. So, and, yeah, there's and been a couple, of, a couple of shows here and there, but shows, nothing, nothing, nothing like major, this no. era we're talking about with this podcast. You know, when no. there was you know a ton of super robot shows um, every year in the seventies and things like that. You know, yeah, and all the sort of uh, real robot stuff was real explosion. Yeah, and it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely been in decline for the last 10 years. Um, mm. So, again, it's like, 
you're very, very lucky to get one mecha show per season these days. I think, you know, in reality, you tend to get, you tend to often get a season that hasn't really got any sort of proper mecha in it at all, mm. which is a bit of a shame. Shows, um, shows are so, so um, short compared to what they were. I mean, think of things like Dugram that were like 70 plus episodes. Yeah. You know, um, Vorms 50 and stuff well, like that. Three, of three or stuff. four core TV shows were the norm probably mm. up until the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And then other than Gundam or Macross, you know, Gundam, that tends to be two cores, but split over two seasons these days. Yeah, true. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, outside of that, nothing nothing even gets two cores these days. It's very, very rare for a show to get two cores, let yeah, alone yeah. three or four. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's just... So that's just the change in the industry, unfortunately. Yeah. So developing those really long narratives um, does, you know, feel a bit of a thing of the past these days. And on that note, it's also, you know, despite Discotech's best efforts to continue to bring Mecha out and release it and license it in the West, it's disappointing to see that Made in Japan have discontinued Idion Votomes and Pat Labor. Those sets just seem to be completely out of print now. Right. Um, which is a real a real shame. Um, to be honest, I hadn't um, I hadn't actually noticed that. I didn't realise they'd kind of started to disappear. Yeah, well, I, my first inkling of it um, that something was wrong was that Bright Stuff did a flash sale. Um, oh yes, and they were talking about stuff that was soon to go out of print, weren't they? Like um, a while ago. And they did a load of and in it, this was six months ago, probably mm-hmm. September of two thousand nine. It was somewhere around that time, and yeah. they were selling. They were selling all that um, Made in Japan stuff off really cheap because mm-hmm. that was the time where you could get the whole Pat Labor box set for $25. Yes, I remember yeah. that, yeah, because yeah. I'd already bought it. Um, <laughs> I've still got a good deal on it, but yeah, well, that was a crazy deal. Because um, I bought the Idian Blu-ray set for $10 and I bought wow. the two um, Votomes OVA sets for $8 each. You know, it was like <laughs> crazy money, Christmas. but... It was like once they were gone, they were gone. Though it was quite mm. clear, and and yes, they are. Glad I picked them up in that case because I've got all those, thankfully. Um, they are they are out of print now, which is a real wow. sh- real shame because I was really hoping that Made in Japan were going to maybe sort of carry on because they released um, mm. Zabungle, and I'm not sure if that's out of print, but um, oh, I hope not because I was that was on my shopping list. <laughs> you know, I was hoping we were going to get Elgine Galleon. Mm. Um, because I think Dunbean is still in print. I'm yeah. I'm sure that was made in Japan. Um, I snagged that. Yeah, that is a made in Japan one as well. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so um, that, I think I'm sure I've still seen that as, as being available. Um, but yeah, those those three or those four sets, um, well, yeah, five sets, yeah, the three Votomes, Idian and Pat Labor. Yeah, they're gone. So there must have been something oh. on a very, because uh, they haven't been out for for very long no not um, really I, I think um, I picked up the uh, Vortums ones when they were new like uh, was it a year ago now two years ago I'm trying to think. yeah because they've only been out about a, well up, up until the point oh, of that sale yeah they up until that point of that sale in six months ago I think that, yeah, they mm-hmm. can't have been out for much more than a year mm. um, obviously Pat the uh, Pat Labour stuff's been available for a very long time but yeah because it was single sets first and then they brought yeah. up that complete edition didn't they because it was all available, and then obviously it got to a point where they'd made enough money, or the license they knew the license was expiring, and it came out mm. in that box set 
funnily enough, actually, when I think back, it did come out in a box set about the same time as Idian and the Votone stuff come out. So mm. maybe there was like a, there was like, right, we've got a year or 18 months or something where we can, we mm. can make money on this yeah. and stuff. And then Best the license is out. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, it was massively disappointing that they've gone out of print. Um, yeah, especially really. since a lot of people tend to be, you know, coming to things like Palibor and Vorms for the first time. You know, yeah, like a lot of these yeah. shows you see on Twitter, there's, I've seen a lot of people watching them for the first time and really enjoying them. And uh, those people who are maybe catching them on the first time for a street, on a streaming service or something like that won't be able to pick them up now if yeah. they wanted to own them. Yeah, it's a so a shame. it is a shame. So, yeah, I'm um, very disappointed about that. So, uh but hey ho, let's hope maybe there's some Lysky rescues. I mean, Discotech mm. still still pumping that stuff out, you know. Yeah, indeed, um, yeah. You know, you've got Voltus Five and mm-hmm. um, come out, and you know, a couple of the other ones. Yeah, you know, there's still there's still hope there. Yeah, I, just, I really, really, really want a Blu-ray set of um, Elgheim though. Mm. I absolutely want a proper Blu-ray set of Elgheim there's hoping <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah well you know considering some of the stuff that's came already um yeah. we shouldn't lose hope because uh didn't really think i'd see the day that a lot of the stuff we've got there came out so no no absolutely <laughs> i still have my fingers crossed that with the deal that new right stuff have with sunrise with mm-hmm. with gundam i'm hoping that at some point that opens the doors to other sunrise shows coming out via right stuff yeah. as well but Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. crossed. Right. So today, lacrosse. So obviously, these three OVAs are something that both of us have seen, Mm -hmm. um, some more than others. So lacrosse two, I first saw in the the late nineties, and then on VHS, and then I had Kaseki's. I actually, I still own Kaseki's terrible um, (laughs) DVD of it. Yeah, the uh, DVD era with Kaseki was a bit of an eye-opener, wasn't it? They it just was, kind of yeah. slapped stuff onto uh, DVD let's just, scan lines and all. Yeah, it was literally, <laughs> let's plug um, the VHS recorder into um, a device that will um, print a DVD, and uh, let's go with that. <laughs> they basically did what I did with Star Wars before the DVD release years ago when I was trying to preserve my VHS before, before yes. they released them officially. And, um, yeah, it was bizarre because I had the Gunbuster one. Yeah, that, I've got Gunbuster. I've still got it, actually. Had, like, VHS scan lines running yeah, up and down, which is what awful. I'm referring to. Awful. Terrible. Yeah, terrible releases, <laughs> uh, Kiseki. Um, my, um, I had... Um, it's the only it's the only DVD that's ever actually gone wrong with me was my Kaseki release of Sol Bianca. Right. Um, that that was the only DVD that I've ever had sort of go wrong with me. It just right. it just kind of I don't know. It just kind of stopped working. It just every player <laughs> I tried to put ghost. it in just yeah. I don't know whether it delaminated or something. You know. I, I just, the funny it thing just about was, some defective discs is they do tend to have a have a player that they work in. If you do get one that's a bit dodgy, you do tend to find that something will play it. Yeah, but I, this 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 one would wouldn't work in any player that I had, like laptop, home, whatever computer. It just wouldn't just wouldn't play it. It was it just died literally. Yeah, it was the only DVD that's um that's ever done that to me. Um, but I haven't seen I hadn't seen it probably since I bought that DVD. So I remember watching it a few times, um, probably in the early two thousands. Um, mm. And that was, you know, it's probably been a good 17 or 18 year gap. 
Strangely um, enough, it was very similar for for myself as well. I'd um, I watched it a couple of times in the VHS era from Kaseki, and then I watched that uh, DVD uh, more than once. And around the early two thousands, I got rid of a lot of me um sort of uh, VHSs and stuff, and I still mm. had that DVD for quite a while, but I never really returned to it. Um, and when I watched it recently for this review, it was the first time I'd seen it in quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Macross Plus, I've seen much more regularly. Mm. Um, Same here. That I'd probably only seen a couple of years ago, but even prior to this release, when the Blu-ray came out in Japan, I've seen it a couple of times. That's that's something I I regularly go back to. Um, yeah, same here. I mean, since it came out from Manga Video in, in the uh, yeah. UK, um, I've watched it pretty regularly from the VHS to DVD era to now to get a Blu-ray. So yeah, like watch the rips of it and everything. And then Macross Zero, the last time I watched this, I've, I've only seen this the once beforehand, and that was about 10 years ago. That's not something I've come back to. I'd seen that um, once when it first came out on Fansub, and then like maybe a couple of years later I watched it again, and mm. so this would be like the third view of it. Obviously this is the first one that we're talking about that hasn't had any kind of uh, official release really. No, so. no, it's had no official release At least not in the West anyway. Right, so that's kind of our, our background with these. So we'll get into our first review. Cross 2, Lovers Again, is a six-episode OVA from 1992, directed by Kenichi Yatagai, who also did Ten Little Gal Force, Part 3 of Megazone 2-3, and some of the uh, Tenchi Miyu Ryooki OVAs. And it was produced by Big West, Bandai Visual, MBS, and Hero Communications, with animation production done by AIC on Hero. As we've just discussed, it's not available in the West at the moment. I say Kiseki did a DVD 20 years ago, and there was a Blu-ray release in Japan a few years ago, but that's unfortunately out of print, so there's sort of no official way of getting it at the moment. Um, so, synopsis. 80 years after humans and Zentradi called a truce, a new alien threat emerges, the Marduk. They use Zentradi as slaves and are driven to fight by the songs of female singers known as emulators. Journalist Hibiki Kanzaki saves the life of a Marduk emulator while covering a battle between the UN Spacey Forces and the Marduk and teams up with UN pilot Sylvie Jenner in order to save the Earth from destruction. So, Macross 2. Interestingly, the first thing that you've got to talk about really is its kind of troubled history with its with yes. the canon. <laughs> yeah, it's kind Which of... Which kind of does kind of feed in with a little bit of what is the story so originally the original creators didn't really want to get on and make any more tv mm. series but um, big west wanted to produce more macross so they went down this ova route and then over the years it's either been canon non-canon i think yeah. now it's canon again isn't it i think late last year <laughs> soji karamori said um, actually yes it is canon yeah. so for a very very long time it was treated as like a parallel universe mm. um wasn't it? So yeah, that's right. Kind of like an alternate timeline sort of thing. 
But now it's canon again. I have no idea how that actually fits back into the... Yeah, especially when you can compare the ending of it to Macross Plus. We'll not get into that yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, two very different things happen to the Macross, put it that way. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, uh, the story is a six-part OVA. It starts off with this setting. It's been ten years since Earth last fought the uh, Zentradi, um, and we're in this kind of peacetime... But but something is up, and Hibiki, our plucky hero, he sort of exposes this secret meeting between um, Sylvie and Exegrin. So Exegrin being one of the commanders or admirals of uh, UN Spacey, UN Spacey. Yeah. And, and Sylvie being sort of an ace flight commander type person. So Hibiki, he's... You know, he's one of these people. He's he's an ace journalist. So he's he's built his name on on getting a scoop. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get this background of the Macross is discharging and it's discharging more regularly, and and that kind of sets this background. And then there's a Tridi first turn up. You know, then they they show up, and the Minmade defence is used, which is basically lots of idols being projected in space, singing, yeah. which, which turns all these similarly to the finale of Do You Remember Love, that same sort of. Yes. Use of that. But then there's Zentradi start using their own sort of song defence, sung by these uh, emulators on each ship, that overcomes the Minmay defence. Mm. And the UN space, he just totally isn't prepared for that, are they? No. So it kind of sets off this story then. And this first episode, you get this bit where, you know, Hibiki, he, he then, you know, he's told by his editor to go and film this battle. Mm-hmm. He has to go with this ace war correspondent who's drunk, funnily enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, um, it's uh, Hibiki's pilot in the Valkyrie. Yes, which I always <laughs> find quite interesting. 80 years in the future, private, you, know, you can have private Valkyries now. Um, yeah. The new station, I found that quite fascinating, that the new station yeah, it is. has its own Valkyrie now. It is interesting, because he is primarily a journalist, but he has a pilot's license and yes. he can kind of... Fly one, and he talks about being inspired by the Valkyrie pilots, like that he saw when he was a kid. Yeah. And you kind of get the feeling that he kind of, you know, fancied himself as a bit of a. Yeah, he's sort a bit of, of you know, a, he um, wanted to kind of be a bit of a heroic figure, but he is a bit of a sleazy muckraking journalist, really. Yes, yes. <laughs> he's not very likable in the beginning. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so, unfortunately, while they're on the Zentradi ship, Dennis, who the reporter gets killed in the in the line of duty, which him and. Hibiki have kind of jailed, haven't they? You know, Dennis, yeah. has, Dennis has seen Hibiki as a, you know, a good pilot and, and willing to go after the story and everything. Put himself you know, at and, risk. And yeah. everything. And they kind of jailed and everything. Because they're off to a rocky start at the beginning. Yeah. But by the point when they decide to rescue the emulator, whose name later turns out to be yeah. Ishtar, well, like we say, rescue or kidnap, it's kind of open to interpretation. Yeah. I, guess, I mean, they do save her because the the ship's going to blow us up. So. Yeah, that's right. But his later behaviour is a little bit creepy when he's filming her with the camera when she's unconscious. Yeah. So <laughs> Can't get past that. No, so they get back. As we said, Dennis dies. The UN Spacey won't release the footage straight away. And then when they do, mm. it's doctored. And then Hibiki smuggled Ishtar into his room. And then you kind of goes on from there. And one of the interesting things at this point and kind of sort of sets the one of the key themes that runs through the OVA is this thing about propaganda and the manipulation of news Um, because it's quite you know it's one of the things that sort of happens 
quite a way through. You know, there's always this footage, the real footage, and then it's the military UN Spacey. They edit it and they hack it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and ultimately Hibiki in episode five eventually has to break into UN Spacey's mm-hmm. headquarters and yeah. hijack their broadcasting equipment. That's right. He kind of sort of hijacks the feed and kind of broadcasts it. The real, the real footage is the undoctored. Yeah. And it is a very explicit theme of this um, OVA. I mean, there's there's an episode later where there's um there's this sort of big like idol show. Yes. And um, there's all this kind of like propaganda kind of music and they're mm. singing about Valkyries and things. And this new Valkyries introduced called the Steel Siren and it's like, you know, they've got this kind of um, this idol who. There's, yeah. there's all this stuff going on with that that's quite, that, you know, it is very much kind of, uh, you know, look at us and how great we are. Yeah. But the military sort of singing their own praises. Yeah, but it's that thing about there's nothing to worry about, there's nothing to worry about. And mm. Hibiki knows that there's Entradi who aren't actually just as Entradi, they're actually Marduk being the, the, the Marduk, who are another rate warrior race who are actually using the Zentradi as yeah. kind of cannon fodder. Foot soldiers, almost. Yeah, it's kind um, of like puppet masters pulling the yeah. strings on. And he knows this much greater threat's coming, and mm-hmm. you and Spacey aren't telling the Earth people about it, and they're hiding it, and constantly hiding it. And even after the, they attack that idol show, the um, Moon Festival, so during, you know, even during that, it's hidden. And even when the Zentradi do actually reach the Earth's surface, you know, it's all covered up, and mm. you know, the threats reach them. Um, you know they're not telling people about it so people are completely yeah. unaware that this massive threat is literally on their doorstep so mm. i quite like the way that that theme plays out through this actually yeah uh, and that that sort of serves as the kind of uh conduit for making Habiki more of a sympathetic character it does. he starts he starts yeah. to sort of see what's at stake he yes. starts to care about ishtar yes. more than just being a scoop because uh, Sylvie, the um, the female uh, pilot, is really kind of quite disgusted with his behaviour, isn't she? She's yeah. like, she hates the fact that she's been treated as a scoop when she had that kind of rendezvous with Commander yes. Exegrin. Exegrin, sorry, I can't say his name. And uh, she hates his treatment of Ishtar as a scoop as well. Yeah. She just finds him totally deplorable in the beginning. And I think, you know, if I'm honest, like the sort of audience should too, really. Yes. Because <laughs> yeah. that bit at the beginning is that uh, Sylvia and Exegren know what you know they're talking about they know something's on its way they know mm-hmm. this threat's at the edge of the solar system or you know within their space you know and that's right and they're having a meeting about that but it looks a bit dodgy yes because yeah. <laughs> they're in disguise and stuff as well aren't they so that's right I mean it looks like a all all the commanders with yeah. the sweet young girl in the yeah. hotel and, it, and that's what he's kind of ex- thinks that's he's what exposing. he's exposing yeah exactly because the other thing here and and one of the things, you know, we'll talk a little bit through the three reviews. That certainly watching this is, you know, you've got the classic love triangle. Mm-hmm. You've got the classic love triangle quite early on there. And, you know, it mm-hmm. establishes yeah. it quite quickly, really. There's this love-hate relationship between Hibiki and Sylvie. Mm-hmm. And then... Ishtar's thrown into the mix Ishtar's as well. the mix as well. And she kind of likes Hibiki. And there's a kind of thing going on. He thinks she's beautiful and, and he's filming her and they kind of go on that date to the mm. um the world park bit of epcot you know the wonders of the world thing don't they yeah because it's like a, there's a culture plaza around the macros isn't there that's sort of built up around all the different cultures of the world yes um surrounding the actual macros itself and there's like all these kind of relics and treasures and you know artifacts and antiques and things and yeah. things that it's basically a big museum isn't it 
yeah. all but has something from every country in it. Yeah, there's a bit of Epcot where half the park is like you walk through different countries, and it just reminded me of just reminded yeah. me of that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But then while they're there, then um, Seth, who's the sort of commander, well, she's kind of he's like the commander of the unit that Ishtar was part of. Mm-hmm. Um, he's yeah. kind of, but he's got this kind of protege teacher student kind of relationship with her as well, isn't he? Yeah, he kind of sees her. He kind of sees her as his project and is very protective over her. Mm-hmm. It does that actually again quite early on in those first few episodes. It starts to build this this story, um, mm-hmm. and then you have the Moon Festival, and then you kind of get into this wider battle between UN Spacey and the Marduk, who yeah. you know get closer to Earth and start invading Earth space and and get through the atmosphere and. They mm-hmm. destroy it, and eventually, because Ishtar is always referring to Macross as the Alice, you know, it's, it's yeah. this legendary thing that will bring peace to their people. And so eventually, they get onto the Macross and launch the Macross. And because in space, you've got these Macross cannons, which are like, you know, yeah. sort of reverse engineered, earth built Macrosses. Yeah, they're um, kind of like sort of Macross lights in a way, you know? Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, Macrosses. Yeah. Mass Macrosses. And then, you know, they're kind of getting difficulty. So the last resort is to launch them across, which mm. eventually... Which you get the impression has kind of stood in that place for like the 80 years since yes, the yes. events of uh, Do You Remember Love? It's kind of been static and it just yeah. occasionally disrupts these kind of like bursts of energy, but it's still a kind of figurehead and landmark and part of that museum rather than a kind of relic of the past and yes. Earth's hopes rather than actually being a functional ship anymore. And so then eventually with Ishtar, you know, she turns all the other emulators against Inguis, who is the leader of this Marduk. And they all turn on it and they defeat him. And then the Earth kind of gets back on, integrates with these Entridi soldiers. And then you get the end of the sort of love triangle and and off they go. So, and Ishtar goes off back into space to... Mm kind of spread the peace, try and spread the peace again through yeah. through the songs that she's learned. Because she's sort of, um, she doesn't really understand that songs could be used as an expression of anything other than war, does she? No, that's right. So she's got that kind of, she's got a different type of culture shock to the Zentradi. She's got the culture shock of understanding that actually songs can yes. be beautiful things and can be things that express more than just a kind of call to war, really. Yeah, and so... Through this thing, there's several threads that basically run through. So this, that's mm-hmm. the, the, the kind of the basic story. You know, there's this thing about propaganda mm-hmm. and the manipulation of information and, and what you tell the people. Then you've got this sort of almost civil war manipulation of a race by another race. Mm-hmm. And then you have this love story, um, the love triangle, again, mm-hmm. that runs through. You know, we've talked about a bit about the theme of the, the propaganda. The, the love story, um, and something I sort of started saying a bit earlier, but having it's been very interesting watching all this Macross stuff in, in one go. In one go. Yeah. Especially so close to watching the TV series and Do You Remember Love last mm-hmm. year. Um, yeah. I, I, I typically watched all this stuff very, very strong out, and it's been very here, interesting yeah. watching it. And it's interesting how, really, there's a lot of core things. And, like, this core story, this love triangle, you know, is very, very evident and very, very much 
kind of based on the idol, the officer, and the plucky mm. idealist. <laughs> yeah. You know, it it's very much yeah. lifted from the TV series. Oh, so. yeah, absolutely. And, I, and to be honest with you, for me, that is the weakest thing about Macross 2. It's the fact that it doesn't really feel like it has yes. um, too much new in it. I mean, the, the propaganda yeah. stuff's a bit different. That's probably its biggest new theme. But the rest of it, a lot of it feels a bit too recycled. Yeah. The other thing with that as well is they've rehashed that love triangle almost mm. almost feels identically mm. and it doesn't feel convincing at all no. when Hibiki and Sylvie kiss and kind of get together and that doesn't I don't know it just doesn't feel like a convincing I think for me it's because it's such a short over yeah. there's not there's not enough time for those character relationships to build I know Obviously, the TV series we discussed, the TV series, the original SDF Macross, was a bit too long. Yeah. It's all about Stasis Welcome a little bit, and it opens up the relationship again so that, you know, in the original, yeah. um, you had some resolution between Hikaru yeah. and Misa. Yeah. Uh, but then um, the relationship sort of faltered again, and it was like the, the, it was all reset. Yeah. And then yeah. they were back to square one again. But with this, you know, although that aspect of it was frustrating in some ways, at least the, the, throughout the TV series, it had a long time to play out, play out yeah, those characters. Yeah. Against the in this, because we've only got six episodes, I don't think there's enough time to foster that kind of those meaningful feelings. No. And it's a similar way with Hibiki's character for me. It doesn't really feel a very natural progression that he certain, suddenly becomes quite a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> After being a bit of a sleazebag in the yeah, beginning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think he's a little bit more sympathetic by the end, and you can root for him a little bit more, but I'm not sure his transformation really happens in real time. No, I know what you mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's, when um, he sort of breaks down in front of the camera after revealing the sort of feed and showing everyone the truth, he's kind of, and he's, and he's sort of crying and that. It doesn't feel necessarily that natural to me. No, no, and I think you're right. I mean, I, that's the, the kind of feeling I get, is that it just hasn't had the space to, to, to it's develop got, that it's it's crashed it in and because it's got the opposite problem to the tv series which had yes, too much time it yeah. was extended this has had its wings clipped a bit too soon really for me yeah because i think the story as it plays out is kind of very standard mm. it, uh, there's nothing new or interest particularly yeah. interesting about the plot the way it plays out it's boy meets girl boys an arsehole <laughs> you know he kind of changes there's a war. The, mm. the threat escalates. Boy, t- arsehole turns good. Mm-hmm. Goes off with the girl that you don't expect him to, and and all's good at the end, sort of thing. Um, yeah, you know exactly. It is quite a sort of it's a very TLS yeah, case. it's a very sort of paint by numbers plot. I mean, it really, really is. Um, and I think the fact that you start off the show with Habiki as the main sort of character and Sylvie's more of a kind of supporting character at the beginning. Yeah. At least I felt that way. Yes, yeah. She's the stronger character, probably. Yes. You know, she's she's the one who's more headstrong. She's more moral. She's probably yes. a bit more interesting. Yeah. She's a bit more nuanced. And because we're sort of following Habiki at the beginning and he's not that sympathetic, I sort of feel like it could have benefited from Sylvie having more of a focus at the beginning. Mm, yeah, I think you're right because it, it does does seem to take a couple of episodes for her to really sort of come back mm. in and when i think about this it kind of makes sense well i can kind of it doesn't make sense that's the wrong word i can kind of understand some of the logic of yeah. maybe putting the focus on the relate this blossoming relationship between and this infatuation that habiki has with ishtar mm-hmm. there and then it kind of 
it changing as Sylvie gets involved. But sure. the Sylvie thing just never feels convincing. No, it, it just, doesn't. It doesn't it really convince doesn't. me that all of a sudden they're in love. Yeah, she would not. There's no way she would have feelings for him, really, no. especially given his prior sort of uh, behaviour. No. I mean, it, he does do things to, to. I mean, he does do some quite heroic things later in the story, and he does do some things to protect her and probably to make her think more of him as a person. Yeah. But I don't think anything would spur her into sort of feeling like there's any romance there. No. And the conflict between them to start with makes a lot of sense because Hibiki, you know, he's this kind of ace reporter. You get the impression he's a bit of a superstar because he's obviously had this massive scoop in the past, which Mm. made his name, which is why he's now the hotshot reporter at the station. You know, he's had this massive success, which he's rested on those laurels ever since. Mm -hmm. And then Sylvie is the golden girl of... The UN Spacey space fleet, really, isn't she? You know, yeah, she's, she's like a, the sort of hotshot pilot kind of. Yeah, Exegrant sees again this sort of teacher student protege. I mean, he does loads to protect her, doesn't he? Mm. You know, when she's actually kind of when she goes off to rescue um, Hibiki again in episode four or whatever it is, four or five. Um, you know, she goes off against orders, and you know, she has mm-hmm. this very loyal group of pilots beneath her yeah. who, who kind of worship her and, and do everything you know will go yeah. after her and they break all the rules to go and get her and Exegram won't discipline her or anything he has mm. to step away sort of thing you know he's kind of too close yeah. mm-hmm. um, so th- that conflict makes a lot of sense yeah mm-hmm. but like I say the, the sudden softening of her and his change of heart yeah it doesn't no, it's not it doesn't, convincing no it's uh, not convincing at all yeah and I think like you know, there are a lot of archetypes in, in the show. I mean, Dennis as well. You know, he could yeah. be considered a bit of a character archetype. The world weary war correspondent yes, who drinks yeah, too much. Yeah. You know, um, but I actually wanted to know more about his character. Even though he is somewhat of an archetype, I kind of wanted to have a bit more backstory for yeah. him. And I sort of wanted him to last a bit longer because in the first episode, he's probably the most interesting character to me. Yeah. So he doesn't get much screen time. Yeah. And he gets killed off straight away. <laughs> it's a bit frustrating that for me. Yeah, because... He's like, has he reported on previous battles between you and Spacey and Centradi? Has he seen mm. what you know? What has he seen off world or whatever? Um, What's but, made him the sort of kind of shell yeah. of a man that he's become? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's definitely an interesting story there. There's definitely there's definitely more to him there. So I mean, there's a few things there we've given it a bit of a kicking for. I mean, there's some other stuff that I do think mm-hmm. it does quite well, really. Um, I quite like the background to this current war is that they saw off the Zentradi 10 years prior with the mm. Minmade defence and all the rest of it, you know, and yeah. then, then this new threat has come. I quite like the way that you have the Marduk as this sort of master race of the Zentradi, and I really, mm. really like the way, I, well, I really like how aggressive the Zentradi are portrayed yeah. under, under the control of the Marduk. There's something That's really right. sinister and mm. sort of horribly aggressive about them they are they feel like a real threat in this mm. uh, you because know. i mean the the original tv show did a lot to to make them like another side of the wall you know even though they were giants they were still humanoid yeah they could be sympathetic you know in the post-war episodes they introduced a bit more comedy and had some of the sort of characters who had been a bit more yeah. evil have been a bit more light-hearted and stuff they did a lot to humanize them basically 
Yes. And uh, this makes them kind of feral because when the emulators sing the songs, they go berserk. And they turn them into these kind of suicide weapons eventually, mm. don't they? they, they, they kind of zombie-like, to... aren't they, really? Yeah. The way they kind of just become like sort of berserker kamikaze pilots almost. And because you never see their faces, they're always hidden behind a visor and you just see mm. the nose and mouth. As I say, there's something very sinister and threatening. Yeah, and it kind of dehumanises them a bit. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I, I quite like the way it did that. I thought it, that mm. was very, very effective. Uh, I thought episode five was the best episode. It had some very, very good space battles in it. Yeah, that feels more like classic Macross, doesn't it? Yes, um, it does, yeah. And even harks back to like some of Macross's influences, like Yamato and things like that, you know? Yeah. That kind of epic space opera stuff. Yeah. There's, there's a lot that happens in that episode, and, and I've got that written down in my notes as well. It feels like more like an episode of the original TV series. Mm, definitely. Because um, it's got a lot... That episode has an awful lot in it. It does, yeah. I had trouble summarising that when I was writing my notes. <laughs> I was pausing that one hell of a lot to write. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that goes on in that, because it, I'd say it has that scene where Hibiki finally tells the, the, the rest of the, the, the Earth what's actually happening. So it has these amazing space battles... And then it has this dark edge where Ingress releases the song that turns the uh, Dentradi into these, you know, suicide soldier. There's an awful lot that happens. It's it's yeah, really, it really, really good. Quite dense compared to some of the other ones, which have been, you know, primarily yeah. about character relationships and the sort of escalating threat. Yeah, because, I mean, as much as, the, uh, you know, I sort of kicked the story for saying it's unoriginal, it, it at least moves in a logical order. You know, yeah. it's... It, mm-hmm. it, the set pieces and the, the key milestones in the story move along at a reasonable pace in the right order. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it acts as a good framework for yeah. sort of hanging the, hanging the rest of it off. Um, it sort of builds quite well as well. You know, it's yeah. it's kind of, it's pacing's not bad at all. I w- yeah. You know, I'm not bored while watching it. You know, I don't feel like it's, you know, no. really like a struggle to get through at all. No, because no, um, another bit that's really, really good as well is um, the sequence that starts with the Macross cannon gets destroyed mm-hmm. you see these two massive space fleets facing off and the macros cannons get, start getting destroyed and then Bolze takes the Gloria um, mm-hmm. off to face the enemy as Next tries to stop him and then the Gloria gets destroyed because again we've got this real trope of Bolze he's, he's, he's your standard Yamato um, yeah, space fleet captain, captain isn't, he? isn't he the sort of hat over the one eye and yeah, that sort of thing the yeah. big beard and the, the coat and everything <laughs> I mean it's just you know, it's, yeah. it's right from the 70s um, mm. and every other Starfleet captain you've, you've ever seen. Um, <laughs> but that sequence, though, those sort of three or four minutes in that, I, I, it's just a really, really good scene. Yeah, it's, it's got, it's, it's got it's tension. It's, you know, there's drama, there's, you know, the character sacrifice. It's really done really well. So um, I think it stands out quite a lot against the battle in the first episode because the battle yeah. in the first episode feels a bit like... Um, a quite sort of poor retread of the finale of Do You Remember Love? Yes. Uh, yeah. Because the production values are nowhere near as insane as that movie was, obviously it's going to be a tough act to follow. But using it, you know, in the first episode right away, it not having, you know, particularly great com- production values in comparison to that movie, and it also being a very similar scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, it feels like a bit, mm, a bit of a kind of, you know, retreading the same ground too much and yeah. a little bit of a letdown then when you see how well they were able to do a battle in episode five and how tense that is yeah, in comparison yeah. it stands out quite a bit to me as the first episode um action not being anywhere near as good as what comes later yeah i, I know what you mean i know what you mm-hmm. mean because it kind of relies on almost rehashing a lot from 
the TV series, doesn't mm. it? It's obviously... And therefore, do you remember Love as well since they're yes. similar? Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it really tries to recreate that feel, and it's not always that successful. successful. Yeah, um, I think it's kind of, you know, trying to bring back that nostalgia of yes. what was a very well-loved TV show. Yeah. Maybe not handling it as well as could have been done. No, and, you know, you, you, a lot of staff who worked on that weren't in this as well. Because mm. so, um, New weren't involved with the studio, New no, weren't involved no. with this. And um, I think it, it's it is a fine line between, you know, sort of remakes, rehashes and nostalgia and kind of like fan service. Yeah, you, yeah. It's hard to balance those things effectively. Yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. The other thing as well that I, I'd say I do quite like is the the way Ingris deeps, you know, deals with his things of the ships being contaminated. Because mm. um, he wipes that one ship out completely, doesn't it? It's like, no, yeah. they've been contaminated and, you know, yeah. just obliterates it's, it. Yeah, but... he basically thinks the culture is contaminated his fleet, so he China mercilessly kills his own sort of bad people. Yeah, it? that's done quite well, I think. There's bits mm. of that which I think are, are reasonably convincing as well. So looking at some of the other characters, we've talked quite a bit about Hibiki. Sylvie, as we said, you know, she's this kind of hot shot and, you know, she's the star of the UN Spacey, really, isn't she? She's um, not afraid to speak her mind and doesn't no. really take anyone's crap lightly. No, I, I did laugh when Nex tries to sort of get her to go back to her sort of thing after they've been out for dinner or whatever and she brushes them off. That was quite good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Mash is an interesting character. I'd really like to have seen him get a lot more screen time, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Even though he doesn't get very much screen time, he is an interesting character, and I'd like to have known a little bit more about him, really. Quite interesting, because he's, he's obviously a trans character or a cross-dresser mm-hmm. or, or something, and you know, it was interesting, the portrayal of those characters at that time. Because one of the things I think is really, really interesting about him is he's a bit kind of dodgy, because he mm-hmm. obviously does some dodgy things for Hibiki. Yeah. He's kind of like got all these underground connections and things, hasn't he? And he's he's yes. he's kind of like uh, he smuggles um, Ishtar into uh, Habiki's room and yeah. seems to have knocked her out with some sort of cocktail <laughs> of drugs, which is more than uh, more than a little bit dodgy. But yeah, he's got all these underworld connections and he runs a beauty salon, but that seems to be like a cover for yes. other, some more sinister operations, or at least you know nothing certainly so violent, underground. Certainly underground, maybe data and yeah. uh, and sort of like you know getting people drugs and who knows what else. Yeah, because I think one of the things that's quite interesting about him is that he obviously has a thing for Hibiki, mm. and like Hibiki is obviously completely oblivious to it. Yeah, yeah, he um, seems to be. Because when Mash did this favour for Hibiki and got Eshtar into his flat, mm-hmm. you know, he was obviously looking at kind of some reward or getting something back. And mm. I think you know, there's there's a bit in there where. You know, Hibiki only sees it as like, yeah, I'll pay you back and sees it only as a financial thing. Whereas Mash, he was like, well, I've done this massive favour for you, but... Could you not come out on a date with us or something? Yeah, you know, (laughs) he's looking for a bit more sort of romantically, I think, a little bit more, Mm. you know, on a sort of physical or emotional sort of back. But there's quite an interesting line, I think, in a few episodes later where they do the makeover or he Mm. does the makeover on Ishtar. Mm-hmm. and he makes a line about how he knows men and women better than he thinks he does you know and i think yeah. there's this kind of unrequited love or feelings from mash mm. to hibiki that are, are never reciprocated yeah at all. absolutely yeah and it's uh that's would have been something to be would have been a bit more interesting to explore a little bit more i think yeah had they had a bit more screen time 
Yeah, you know, and, and one of the things, you know, we've said that there isn't enough room. There's there's obviously just a whole backstory or a bit more that could have mm. just, I think, could have been developed a bit more. That would have been really, yeah. really interesting, I think. I'd like to know how they kind of came to work together, you know, how he, yes, how exactly. he sort of ended up being the sort of slightly dodgy kind of um, yeah. fixer for, yeah. his, uh, for his journalism. Yeah. You know, like whenever he needs something slightly underworld he, he comes to mash yeah. that would be interesting to know the sort of arrangement that they had and how that all began definitely. yeah definitely yeah there's definitely more to that then we've got sylvie who's our ace pilot and this sort of um starlet of the un spacey and she, she's obviously this you know ace pilot and certainly the apple of like exegrin's eye really isn't mm, yeah she's kind of like a star pupil if you like her characterization i think is quite she's quite hard-nosed mm. She's very headstrong, um, you know, isn't she? Knows headstrong exactly. and everything. Exactly what she wants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she doesn't take any crap from uh, no. her <laughs> So, you know, pretty much straight away in the first episode, she's uh, she's given him hell about um, how he not only treated uh, her and Exegrin in the sort of, you know, what was supposed to be a kind of rendezvous that he was exposing, which actually wasn't. Yeah. Uh, but also, um, she later gives Hibiki a really hard time mm. for a treatment of Ishtar as a scoop. Yeah. You know, she doesn't. She sees that as really sleazy that he would use her to get yeah, a story. Absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, he has a change of heart, but she's probably the most kind of morally centered character at the beginning, and you you sort of rooting for her much more than you are for Hibiki. You know, Hibiki's yeah. not exactly the most sympathetic protagonist at the beginning. And along with Sylvie, you have the sort of the, the her squadron, um, the girls mm. in her squadron who you know who are very very loyal to Sylvie. And, yeah. You know, that's kind of like this. Mark, you know, she's got great integrity, you know, she's a great pilot, she's a great leader, <laughs> and her squadron, all the girls in her squadron really, really look up to her, you know, and respect her and, and, and do everything. Yeah. You know, they go out of their way and break the rules to go and rescue her and Hibiki. Mm-hmm. They know they're going to get into trouble for it, but it's, yeah. it's Sylvie, their squad leader, so they'll do whatever it takes, and whether it's right, wrong, against the rules and regulations or not. Yeah you know, to do what's right for her sort of thing. Yeah. In many ways, she's one of the, uh, the sort of uh, best characters in the um, in the OVA, really, for me, because yeah. I think that had she not been in it, there wouldn't be as much of a moral centre to the show. No. And I think no, you need that in the early episodes because Sabiki is so unlikable at the beginning. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, completely agree. And Sylvie's girls, they're very much like kind of like the bridge bunnies from the original yes. Macross TV series, Absolutely, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah, they fill that kind of instead. gap. Yeah. Mm, yeah, they are very much like that, just made into cute Valkyrie pilots instead. Yeah, that's definitely a nod to the uh, to the original TV series. I feel so. Yeah, it's um because they have that same sort of back and forth chat. Sometimes yeah. fulfilling a sort of comedy role, sometimes sort of serious and kind of plot driven, but always they're always interesting because all the characters are so different. You know, there's even yes. the ditzy one, yeah. and you know, like you know the kind of more commanding one, and so on and so forth. Just like you had in Macross, you know, it's so they definitely kind of uh, fill in those um, those roles. Definitely. And then moving on to Exegran, he's the, you know, this sort of senior sort of admiral commander within UN Spacey and um, Sylvie's mentor. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to see him because he obviously has a lot of conflict in his dealings with Sylvie because he's obviously mentored her from a cadet or whatever and, and mm-hmm. probably helped promote her rapidly through the ranks. You know, mm-hmm. when she's being investigated or when she went off to the... Uh, and tried his ship and had to be rescued you know he has to step away because he's kind of too close to it yeah 
he he won't see her get punished or you mm. know lay down that punishment on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he just has um, sort of a too much short respect for her to be involved mm. with. It. He kind of separates himself from her, and and he is kind of like um, you know they obviously have respect for him. Yes, you know yeah. they, in the same way they have respect for Sylvie, the the fairy squadron. Yeah. Um, as, as they're called, they're, they're sort of um, always kind of looking up to him as well. Although, yeah. maybe not uh, quite so much that they don't think that he's a bit dodgy. Yeah. <laughs> because of the fact that they're all talking about uh, yeah. the fact that he tried to take her to a love hotel on the radio chatter. There's, yeah. this, there's a scene where they all pop up and sort of like, they're all like, oh, really? Did he do this and that? And, yeah. Well, what happened there? You know, it's, is this story true that's going around the news? Yeah, so the, the the gossip, you know, that is quite funny, that is. And he, that is quite nice, you know, and, and Sylvie tries to sort of shut them down quickly, but, you yeah. know, they, they, it's too juicy, isn't it, the gossip? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's too yeah. good, to, they can't leave it alone. But it's, um, quite, it's quite a nice little comedy segment, the way the faces come up on a sort of video yes, screen, and yeah. another face keeps on popping yeah. up and in, interjecting. It's yeah. good seeing that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's very good. And actually, you can see he's conflicted. You know, he has these conflicted feelings about what is the right thing to do, either by her or by UN Spacey mm. and, and the yeah. fight, because he obviously trusts her a lot, and they obviously have a lot of mutual respect, which is why Exegran had that secret meeting with her, because, mm. you know, you kind of get this feeling that she was almost like the only one he could fight in. Yeah. And, so, yeah. and have that sort of like that we know this threat's coming and you're the only one I can really trust to do the right thing about this mm-hmm. because of it's such a big thing and affects the earth so much they you know they've got to do it in secret and yeah they don't want the whole thing getting out uh, because no. there's a lot of information that's quite sort of sensitive yeah. and then you know on the sort of Zentradi or the the Marduk side rather we've got Zeph who's uh, sort of Ishtar or the commander of Ishtar's ship you know Ishtar is, is Zeph's mm-hmm. emulator um, and he's quite an interesting character because he has the same sort of relationship with Ishtar that like Exegrin has with Sylvie mm. you know there's very much a mentor I find him quite interesting because you get the feeling he doesn't quite believe in the mission yeah absolutely there's a, I think there's a couple of scenes that shows that he's not really uh, following Inguis um, completely no. He's not on the same page as him regarding the uh, whole sort of culture infecting um, yeah. the troops. He doesn't really, I don't think he really believes that it's, you know, anywhere near as important as him. And there's a couple of scenes where it kind of demonstrate that he's got his doubts. Yes. And I think that's kind of rubbed off on Ishtar. And that's why mm. Ishtar is like runs away and, and she won't sing and, and fulfill yeah. her emulator role because mm-hmm. she sees that doubt. And that sort of, in him. of commitment in Feth. So it's like, well, he doesn't quite believe in this. So, you know, sets those seeds of doubt in her and then, you know, mm-hmm. leads her on her path, really. Yeah, that's perhaps why. Um, so there, there does seem to be a tension, bit of tension between Inguis and him. And it's probably because yes. he doesn't believe completely yeah. in the mission. And he sees any sort of seeds of doubt as like an infection to be weeded out. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's, he's kind of... Uh, very sort of um, suspicious of anyone who kind of wants to, you know, embrace culture, really. No, because we don't see, and again, it's kind of, there's a lack of room to do this, and you don't see very many other Marduk commanders, but you get the impression that Theth is very senior, mm. and, yeah, you know, I he has so. this sort of direct sort of line to Ingris, mm-hmm. um, you know, almost like he's sort of, right-hand man second-in-command type thing exactly you know and that's why you know there's this kind of constant friction between the the two of them Mm. because 
you know, he's relying on him. He's expecting him to do this stuff, and yet Theft doesn't believe in it, and and mm. you know has his own thoughts and and whatever, yeah. his own reluctance to do what Ingress in, or asks him to do. Absolutely, which I think you know brings us nicely on Ingress himself because yeah. Ingress is a character. Um, I see. I feel there's a lot. It's quite lacking, you know. Yeah. Theft is probably a better antagonist than Ingress is in the series. Yes. You know, there's a bit yeah. more to him. He's a bit more nuanced, whereas Ingress is quite underdeveloped for a villain. He's kind of generic. It doesn't really feel like they've put a lot of thought into him as a character to me. No, no, he's he's very one-dimensional. Mm, it's like they needed to have a big bad puppet master who's pulling all the strings of everybody. Yeah. And I feel that you know anime does a really good job of having a lot of nuanced villains. Yeah. Who are complex and you know you you see as not you know they're not completely sort of black to the hero's white. No, exactly. But Ingress just feels a little bit too simple to me. Yeah, he he literally is this big bad who is there to wreak havoc on the earth and destroy the humanity, you know, and move on to the next planet. And that's purely it. There is nothing more to him. Mm. He sort of dies quite simply at the end as well. So he's not really the greatest antagonist. Uh, no. Is he? I mean, even outside of Macross, I think, you know, I think mm. he's, he's a very, very simple by the numbers baddie. I think, I think that's what was so good about the original. And do you remember Lovers had great mm. villains who were yes, yeah, not completely yeah. evil? And, you know, yeah. the post-war stuff, they developed them a lot and made them a lot more mm. sympathetic and a lot more sort of um, personality and made them more like real people, really. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So one of the things we, you know, we've kind of spoken a little bit through the review, but actually much more than I kind of remember it, is that actually this is a really, really good-looking OVA. Mm. I don't quite remember it looking, or some of it looking so good. You know, actually the production yeah. value in it is very high. Uh, we've watched a Blu-ray rip of this, um, mm. and, you know, Blu-ray really does this OVA justice, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, yeah, it's, it certainly does. I mean, I think that um, it has really, I mean, the character design and the uh, the art in it is quite good. Yeah. Blu-ray really, really sort of makes it shine, really. Yeah, and there's lots of really interesting detail. There's lots of sort of like facial detail and facial mm. movement and sort of real expressiveness mm. in the characters. You know, little movements in hair, use of shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, the lots way certain stuff. Yeah, lots of interesting shading, which certainly adds a lot of quite dramatic effect. Or Yeah, it makes the characters look quite dynamic at times, even in it stills does, yeah. and things. Yeah. There's some still parts that look pretty good as well, uh, just because the eye is high quality. Yeah, and, you know, there's some of the way things are framed, shots are framed. Mm. You know, it's it does look really, some of it, quite amazing. And, you know, some of the battle scenes are, you know, really, really well developed. Um, yeah, they are. I mean, we talked about the um, scene with the sort of prototype kind of macros, sort of yeah. mass-produced versions. Yeah, the cannons, yeah. Yeah, with the sort of macros cannons aboard, and that is a really good scene. yeah. There's just some really good action in those last sort of couple of episodes, and and it does kind of uh, get things get the tension going a little bit more um, in terms of you know it is a little bit more artistic the way it's framed. Whereas the Minmay attack in the first episode I think feels a little bit underwhelming. That's yeah. not so great, but I think that's just because you came off we came off the back of watching Do You Remember Love and the TV yeah. series, which the kind of equivalent scenes in the TV show and Do You Remember Love are great. Yeah. And they really kind of stand out. But yeah, I mean, as it goes on, it, it gets uh, sort of better and better looking action-wise. And the characters always look fantastic. And like you say, yeah. it's just all these little sort of you know bits of detail that are great. Yeah, you know, it, character design's all classic, sort of Mickey Moto. You know, it has that kind of feel. It looks and feels very Macross. Mm. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of, as much as 
the story yeah. lacks a little bit. Lacks a little bit, and where its place fits in the overall timeline or not. But it still kind of feels quite, mm. you know, a Macross OVA or part of the Macross universe. You know, I, I think that the look and feel of it in that. The music, you know, it's generally okay. It's not mm. particularly memorable, but it does you know, the job. It, kind of, it does the job. It fits. Uh, opening music I, I quite like as well yeah I quite like uh, the opening sequence I think that fits the sort of OVA quite well it's yeah. it's kind of um, it's got a lot of energy to it doesn't it it's, it does yeah it sort of fits the kind of uh, feel of the show I would say it's quite early 90s mm. the, the mm. uh, opening theme I think but yeah but it does fit it you know but so yeah generally production I think is quite high I, mm. you know it's, it's yeah. a, it feels like a well produced Absolutely. Um, OVA, definitely. Yeah, I mean, what it sort of uh, lacks in the sort of storytelling department, it sort of makes up for in production, I think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Watching this again has been really, really interesting because, you know, if we start to wrap the review up and, you know, get into our sort of overall thoughts on it. When I watched this, when I watched this DVD, because I hadn't watched it all, so you may remember this better than me, but I think it came out on two VHSs. Yeah, it was at least it was definitely more than one. I remember. I think it might have had a re-release as a kind of. It had a, definitely had a re-release as a movie in America. I'm not sure about yes, that. Yes, yeah, because it's released as Macross Two: The Movie in the mm. US, wasn't it? And yeah, that's kind right. of all the episodes were stitched together. Because I seem to remember not having seen all of it. Yeah. Um, when I bought that terrible Kaseki DVD, I'm sure I must have only seen like the first cassette of it or something. Yeah. And then I bought the DVD because it had all six episodes on it. Mm-hmm. And it was like, right, I'll watch this in full. When I watched it back in like 2002 or whatever, I hated it. Mm. I really, really disliked this AVA. I watched it twice. I distinctly remember thinking, I did like that very much. And within a few months, I watched it again. and was like, no, I definitely don't like that. Because mm. um, I keep this tracker of everything I watch. You know, just so that I can kind of remind myself mm-hmm. to whatever 450 lines in it. Um, and this was in like the bottom three of <laughs> my tracker. But, you know, watching it again, I actually quite enjoyed watching this. Mm. I, I think you know, time. It, it was all right. Yeah, time has softened both our views on this, I think, because yeah. I bought it on VHS many moons ago. And like I say, I think it came on a couple of videos. Our price had a closing down sale. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this sort of uh, now defunct retail chain. I think I mentioned that yeah. earlier. And basically, when I sort of picked this up and I watched it, I thought that it, you know, animation-wise and things at the, at the time, I didn't think I think it was too bad, but I thought that the story just didn't really grab us. Now, this was yeah. before I was that familiar with Macross, though. Yeah. And I knew that Macross was this kind of big legendary franchise. When I later rewatched it on DVD, um, like yourself, um, I'd, by then I'd seen the original Macross and I sort of felt like, well, that was just completely nowhere near as good as the original. Yeah. And I kind of wrote it off. And, you know, for many years afterwards, I've kind of not really been in any rush to rewatch it again. Now my familiarity with uh, Macross is better. And, you know, it, I didn't think that time had been too kind to it when I watched it the last time. But now I think I've kind of softened in my views, especially having seen its production values and how nice it looks. Yeah. I still think that the story is kind of the best bits of uh, Macross kind of retreaded or its strongest yeah, points. Yeah, I completely agree with that. But those production values lifted up a little bit. And I don't know, it's not a bad watch. It's not badly paced. It's kind of doesn't outstay its welcome. 
Yeah, do you know what? That's kind of exactly where I am with it because mm. you know if you watch this, it's six whatever twenty six minute episodes. First, so yeah. if you you know if you watch it as the movie, so <laughs> if you take you know the opening and ending credits and Nick's episode previews and everything, and kind of just watched it as you know six twenty minute bits. So that kind of becomes a two hour film sort of thing. Mm. Um, you know if you watch it like that. And it's fine. You know, as I said, the story kind of chips along in a logical progression. It has some really good action sequences. Yeah, you, you could know, do a lot said, worse. You could do a lot worse. I've seen a lot worse. Um, mm, me too. I've seen longer shows kind of do worse than this. You know, I've seen mm. stuff that's, you know, third, twelve, thirteen episodes that don't do anything anywhere near as well as this really. It's not great, like I say, the, the love story isn't convincing, Ingress is mm. one-dimensional, it needed more room to develop a bit more, but mm. it's decent. Yeah. I went into this dreading it because mm. of my memory from same, like yeah. 18 years ago. I remember this just being terrible, and mm. I was like, I was not looking forward to watching this again. And after I got into like the first couple of episodes on the first watch of it, I was like, nah, do you know what, actually I'm quite digging this. Yeah, it's not it's not bad at all. And I think I was the same. I think I'd kind of set myself up to, oh, this is going to be painful. And then yeah. probably because of that, maybe I've just sort of had a bit more open mind and been like, actually, this is yeah. not bad at all. It's, you know, it's got its flaws, but, you know, it's still quite entertaining for all its yeah. flaws. It's an easy watch. It's mm. not great. It certainly is not terrible. Mm. Um, I agree. Yeah. How would you rate it then? I'd say this was a six. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like just above average for me. Mm, I would say about six as well, yeah, for me. It's not great, um, mm. but it's... But there's a lot worse out there. It's not a waste of time. No, no, it's, I think it's quite enjoyable in some ways. Um, yeah. I don't see the hate for it personally. No, it does no, get a lot and it, it does get a lot of hate. You know, I think the, the production values, I think certainly is better than I looked, and I think that certainly helped with mm. my feelings on it. And... All the discourse on it that I see has kind of fitted in with my memory of it. It's like, yeah, it's terrible, it's terrible, but it isn't. It isn't terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I know. think it's, maybe it's partly um, because we were expecting it to be so bad, and also partly because we've seen a lot more now. Yeah, and we realise the scope of just how bad things can be. It's like these, you see these sort of Twitter threads. You know, what's the worst movie yeah. you ever seen? And you think, God, you haven't seen many movies. So you think that's. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think of like yeah, yeah, think absolutely. Of things where yeah. almost everything about it is incompetent, you know, and you know, I think about things where the sound design's terrible, the direction's terrible, you know, the acting's terrible and they've picked a pretty mainstream movie which might not be for everyone or might not even yeah. be that good, but it's still competent. And that's the way I feel about this. You know, it's got a lot of things going for it. And yeah. therefore it shouldn't really be the very bottom of anyone's pile. Yeah, my view doesn't typically change very much mm. on stuff. I get you know, as you watch more and you can compare it more to everything, mm. and as you mature, you know, your your world views and your personal kind of integrity on stuff changes a little bit, so yeah, to definitely, speak. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, I'm, I'm much the same as you. You know, my views don't often change, but I think because I really love the original Macross and uh, Do You Remember Love, I sort of felt like this was a bit of a slight on the franchise at the time. Yeah. But once once yeah, I'd seen yeah. those, I sort of felt like, yeah, that was much better. But now I'm kind of a lot more relaxed about such things. I'm much more relaxed about the overall quality of series and yeah. a few dodgy entries. I'm much more relaxed about canon and that yeah. sort of thing. You know, it's like it doesn't really bother us too much that it doesn't necessarily fit in that well either. Yeah. yeah as you say, I've seen a lot of anime now, an awful lot of anime now hundreds and hundreds of mm. films, OVAs and TV shows and whatever. And this generally isn't that bad. 
Yeah. So I mean, it's so for me, I think you know, it's that six is fairly justified. It's it's quite yeah. an enjoyable watch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you know, people should go and watch this. Don't don't believe everything you read about it. It's yeah. go and watch it. You know. I always encourage people to make their own minds up about whatever we talk about, whether we say yeah. it's good or bad. You know, check it yeah. out for yourself and check make your out. own judgment. Yeah, but I don't think this will be a waste of people's time personally. So now we'll move on to our review of Macross Plus. Um, for this review, we're going to review the OVA and the movie together because they're hard to kind of not talk about them together, really. Yeah, so, it's hard uh, to separate the two. It's it? very hard to separate the two. So Macross Plus the OVA was a four-episode OVA released in 1994. Its chief director was Soji Karamori, and it was directed by Shinichiro Watanabe. Yoko Kano did the music, and Masayuki did the character designs and was released between August 1994 and June 1995. The movie came out in August 1995 designed to determine which of the new Valkyries will replace an older model. However, Eden is Dyson's homeworld where he grew up and Destiny is about to force him to confront his past. So this one was kind of Carol Mori's response to Macross 2 and it sort of came out only a few years or so after uh, Macross 2 had come out. Fundamentally, we have a love triangle, mm -hmm. this time between two men and a woman rather than the other way around as had been. Mayung is a music producer uh, for an AI idol called Sharon Apple. Yeah. And then our two male protagonists are Isamu and Gould who were test pilots. And all three were childhood friends and then yeah. as they grew up some event happened which kind of caused them to sort of split up. Yeah. And then we see basically the story runs where you have Gould and Nisamu competing against each other for this uh, test pilot for this new uh, replacement to the Valkyrie while mm -hmm. Sharon Apple is developed and sort of her AI is developed um, sort and of starts to become more self-aware doesn't it? It becomes more self-aware which then ultimately leads in a battle between Isamu and Sharon Apple and Gould having to fight an AI fighter jet that's the basic sort of premise of the story. So interesting where to start here, because the two yeah. the film in the OVA set off on completely kind of slightly different paths. Yes, very much so, yeah. They tell the same story fundamentally, but mm. in two very, very different ways, I feel. That's right, because, I mean, with the um, the movie version sort of skips a lot of the uh, background, yes. really. You know, you don't get Isamu Dyson um, arriving... Uh, on New Eden, where he's going to be a test pilot. You don't get the scene where his superior sends, sends him there no, after no. his kind of reckless behaviour, because he gets kind of, not demoted, but redeployed. Yes, yes. Because so of his sort of reckless behaviour. So he's a difficult character. 
basically. Yeah, absolutely. He? Yeah. And he's been bounced around and you know moved about from insubordination and and recklessness and everything. Yeah. So the superior yeah. is obviously very frustrated. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so the APA starts off with, as you say, with him in space. You get this sort of big space battle, you know, lovely, again, nicely animated. He's reckless in that, gets bumped off to this test pilot gig, which completely suits him. And then you get the build up of him joining the test program. And that's your introduction. And then you get the introduction to Gould and, you know, and the, the rivalry there. Whereas in the movie, Basically, the first thing is this introduction, sort of quite sinister introduction yeah. to Sharon Apple. Mm. Very brief, but the music and it's, you That's know, the, right. the presence is... Yeah. Yui, isn't she? Yeah. Just kind of like a digital ghost, yes. if you like. Yeah. And her music is kind of otherworldly, you know. There's a strange, yeah. surreal yeah. quality to every scene that she appears in. Yeah, that's right. And then you get that scene, and then you get this, then you get the introduction into their rivalry mm. with... Isamu kind of already been redeployed and then you get this build up to their rivalry yeah the way that builds up and, and then there's some several key differences as it goes up for me the OVA plays much more like a serial you know yes a, a serialized the, the way it's each episode is structured is much more like a serialized mm. sort of programming whereas the film definitely you know the narrative tends to flow much sort of more evenly as a film narrative. Carol mm. Moria, you know, originally this was scripted or screenplayed as a film, but then was forced mm. into an OVA, and then it came back as a film after the OVA. So Which is quite interesting, because, you know, you often get the uh, sort of OVAs cut down, in, mainly well, often TV series is cut down into uh, in the movies and missing a lot of uh, footage, so interesting that it happened around that way. It is. And this is, and it's worth noting as well at this point, you know, as we kind of alluded to, this is much more than just a compilation film of the OVA because mm. it reorders stuff. There's a lot it of stuff cut too. and it adds an awful lot as well. Yeah, it adds, adds a huge deal. So really the relationships between all the characters doesn't fundamentally change. No. There's a rivalry at work for Isamu and Gould with mm-hmm. the test programme. There's the love rivalry over Myung, yeah. and then Myung's relationship with Marge, who's the mm-hmm. sort of brains behind Sharon Apple, and, and his yeah. desire to, mm-hmm. you know, make Sharon Apple a completely sort of autonomous AI. Mm. Um, you know, that's his goal, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We start to get the, uh, the you know, as it goes on, you realise his involvement in things is quite sinister, and yeah. there's uh, something else that you weren't initially aware of. That's quite well done because he becomes quite a sort of sinister character at that point he as does well. yeah but I, I really like the way that the character relationships change subtly and quite realistically from yeah. the first episode onwards I mean a good example is when we first see them initially we know there's something between them and you see a quick flash of a certain incident that's yes. going to be expanded yeah. on late, later on which is very important to how their um, friendship became kind of and their growing sort of feelings became fragmented between the three of them yeah, but the, but going back to that this other thing I just mentioned, yes, because yeah. of that history being between the two of them makes things very complicated. You know, they've still got the kind of ghost of a friendship, if you like. Yeah, that kind of there's still something there that links the two of them. The character relationships change really subtly and quite realistically from the first episode. My favourite example of that is at the end of the first episode when Bowman forces Dyson to crash during the test flight. And you get the scene shortly afterwards where they're at each other's throats and Dyson accuses them of doing it on purpose. And Bowman then, inter- instead of antagonising them, he just apologises and insists it was an accident. 
and Dyson is just totally taken back by it and disarmed by it, and he just basically cools down and, and he looks a bit mystified as Bowman walks away. Yeah. This scene, I feel like it perfectly cements the rivalry and the fact that their yeah, relationship is ever yeah. evolving and ever changing. Yeah. That sort of back and forth between the two of them. Yeah, that's right. And I don't really want to give away the incident because no. it's sort of, I don't want to spoil it for people, but there's clues all the way along. There's really subtle character, sort of little facial expressions, yes. you know, silent expressions. There's moods and everything that kind of allude to stuff going along. And there's reactions. That's the word I was yeah. really looking for. There's reactions to what both of them, especially from Mion, to mm-hmm. what both Isamu and Gould say. Yeah. Um, that kind of hint to it. And when you, it's one of those things, when you see the kind of reveal at the end, all these little things and these, these little expressions and telltale signs and, and, and meaning, you know, the meaning all sort of adds up and it all makes sense. And when you go back and watch it again, it's very clever because it's like some things you see have new meaning to them as well. Absolutely. it's, it's, It's very, very good. It's got a lot of rewatch value just on that side in terms of the emotional yeah. um, sort of depth in the character relationships. And Myung's interesting from the get-go because she's characterised really well. She, she's characterised in a way that communicates to the viewer that she has this kind of profound sadness within her and that she yeah, should be a absolutely. happy person because yeah. she's achieved a lot. But actually, she hasn't achieved what she wants. No. Which is to be a singer herself. Yeah, and the drama in it really sort of you know portrays that she kind of she dresses it up a lot, you know. She she puts his face on that she's happy and everything's working out when it really isn't. Because mm-hmm. there's a couple of bits. There's the scene where she's having dinner with Kate and Morgan, mm-hmm. and uh, there's this shot of her. Kate again and Morgan were childhood friends of our trio. Again, have kind of drifted apart. And there's a sh- there's a frame of Myung sat on her own at the table. And again, it, you get it sort of really helps demonstrate that sense of sort of isolation and loneliness that she has. Mm, yeah. And the bit where she meets Bowman on Pier, you can see that she's sad and she's quite taken aback by having seen him for the first time in seven years. But then yeah. she puts on this front and she sort of bigs herself up quite a bit, you know. Mm-hmm. But you can tell it's all, it's forced. Bravado. It's bravado, yeah. exactly, exactly. And it's, it's bits like that. And after that scene where at dinner and she ends up running off to go to the concert hall and um, there's a bit where she sort of slumps against a glass wall and you see Sharon Apple behind her and again yeah. it really emphasises why she's not happy mm. you know it's, it's, yeah. and this is where this AVA is and the movie for that, this anime I, I would say um, <laughs> is just so good because it frames shots and creates atmosphere and tension it does, yeah, Just very much exceptionally so. well. Mm-hmm. You know, there's loads and loads of examples all the way through this, like that. Yeah, there really is. It's um, it's just very atmospheric all the way through as well. Mm. You know, the use of the framing of shots, like you say, you know, there's a lot of very interesting use of CG, early CG mm. in anime, yeah, where there's um, yeah. sort of hologram-like adverts for Sharon Apple spring to life in public places. Yeah. And, you know, you get, like, sort of people reacting to them and things. And it was done the right way, I feel, that, because, uh, you know, being an early use of CG, it's not overused. It's kind of used in the right way. Yeah, I think the CG, actually, given how old it is, Mm. even watching it now just doesn't look out of place. I think it's because it is so sort of... It's kind of meant to have a bit of a different look to the rest of the show, in a way, because of the way it's used, without again, without spoilers and things. 
I mean, one thing I will say is that one of the test crafts um, is used with CG when it sort of launches and you see it going through this kind of default, uh, yeah. you know, which is the sort of warping yes. mechanism of yeah. Macross. Obviously, the old Macross, uh, the SDF-1, had to... Only the SDF-1 could default, the Valkyries couldn't. And now, like, the Valkyrie has its own default yes. system. Yeah. So the fact that they use this kind of sparkly CG around it when it's travelling through the default... Mm. It's kind of like an effect, so it works in that way. It does, yeah. I, I think it's aged very, very well. Mm. You know, during some of the dogfights when it just kind of looks like scanner data and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It works, it fits, it looks part of the AVA. It's not aged. Yeah. It's, I was quite taken aback when I watched this again last year, mm-hmm. um, just how, how well it has aged, actually. In many um, respects, yeah, it, absolutely. You know, as this goes on, the, you know, the, the rivalry between Gould and Isamu builds and builds and builds and they mm-hmm. repeatedly come to blows mm-hmm. the the action moves from Eden which is their home planet back to Earth because Sharon Apple has been asked to perform at the uh, 30th anniversary armistice of the original Centrali war well Isamu steals the YF-19 and, and heads there to go and get Myung and defeat Sharon Apple and Gould comes after him mm-hmm. where he's sent after him Yeah. Um, so the, the, the action transfers to Earth and that's where you know, it all really comes to a head between Isamu and Gould. Yeah, and they have this sort of final face-off, and then Gould has this realization because he, he's been blocking these memories of this event, and mm-hmm. it comes back to him. And then everything starts to make sense, as you yeah. say. Yeah, you start to realize that all these little characters, yes. sort of shots and things, and all these expressions and sort of tells that the characters have been shown, the viewer like really start to add up. Yeah, and they and then they kind of work it out, and then after that. The X9 turns up the uh, the ghost AI fighter, and then Gould sorts the uh, the ghost out, and Isamu heads off to take care of uh, Sharon Apple. The thing about Isamu and Gould is, I think that they're both very interesting protagonists in their own right, because neither of them are perfect. You know, they've both no, got a lot no. of flaws. They're both prone to anger and they're kind of hot-headed. I mean, Gould's probably a little bit more. Um, he's probably a little bit less kind of uh, of a loose cannon than uh, Ismu is. Mm. He's still got a little bit more sense, but he's still he's still got a lot of similar issues, hasn't he? He has. <laughs> so interestingly, he's half Centradi, and it's revealed through the OVA that he's been taking medication to sort of suppress his Centradi warrior instinct, mm-hmm. which is quite interesting. Yeah. I think that's played on a bit more in the OVA, and that maybe explains some events more that happen in the OVA that, yes. are, that are cut out in the movie. Because in the mm. OVA, there's a bit where Gould loads up live ammo um, mm. and ends up shooting down and sort of badly injuring Isamu. Uh, and that bit's completely removed um, mm. out of the movie. And maybe they just thought that wasn't possibly there wasn't time for that. Maybe just sort of decided to kind of cut that down, maybe. It's an interesting choice because it makes Gould a much more likable character in the movie. He's mm. not such an arsehole. Yeah. He's like he's really, really nasty in the mm. OVA. He's, he's yeah, quite he's quite a, unlikable. Yeah. He, you know, he's quite a contemptible character. Um, Definitely. And those bits kind of balance it out, and mm. and I think that works better in the movie. I think that portrayal of him. I think it's. It, yeah. I think it fits in a bit more with their history. Yeah, definitely. It sort of makes you a bit more indecisive about who to root for and gives you a bit more of a um, dilemma, I suppose. Yeah. You know, it kind of makes them both sympathetic to a degree and then kind of makes you, I suppose, just more invested in both of them as characters, really. 
yeah, I just it just feels a bit more balanced character development, mm. I think, yeah. in the movie with that. Just cutting some of those bits out. It'd be interesting to know exactly why the decision was made, whether it was to make him more sympathetic or whether it yeah. was just a case of we don't have time to fit this in. Uh, but either way, it definitely does uh, work to make him uh, that little bit more likeable. Yeah, he feels a little bit over the top in his dislike against Isami mm. yeah. in, in the OVA. It's kind of ramped up so much that it seems to come back a long way when they do sort of reconcile because I, I like the way in the movie it kind of builds up and builds up and then when they're sort of in the dogfight around that city on Earth mm-hmm. and then where Gould thinks he's finally he destroyed him and then has the, the realisation, that, yeah. that feels like a more logical escalation of their rivalry. Yes, yeah, I, I see what you mean. There's, there's more of a kind of emotional payoff, I suppose, as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, because you do sort of feel a bit more for both of them. And when that reveal comes, because it makes you sort of think about everything you've experienced, it is quite a, um, it's quite a striking moment, really, because yeah. it's it just, the weight of it is such such a big thing. It is, yeah. You know, because it's quite a serious kind of incident, and it's something that really makes you think, hmm, like, you know, it's no wonder the relationship's really complex. <laughs> yeah, because I think when, when he's tried to sort of, he's loaded the live ammo and shot him, that's such a big thing to then sort of go down and then have the build-up in the final episode of yeah. the dogfight and then the reconciliation. It feels mm. like you've almost had that peak too early. Mm. I see what you mean, yeah. Whereas the re-staging sort of staging of events where the bit where he's pushed him down into the ground causes him to get injured. So mm. you've, you've had that bit. And yeah. then the face-off outside the hospital, which I think is another really, really good scene. Definitely, yeah. Um, you know, you've got just the sound of the rain, no music, and, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of bickering between Isamu and Gould and then Miyun getting in the way or in the middle of it and then sort of saying... Yeah. And that bit's really good because she says, like, she's tried to grow up and move on from the, yes, the seven years exactly. and they haven't. That's right. Um, she's very frustrated by the way they are with each other. She can't yes, abide exactly. their yeah. sort of constant bickering. And she just, you know, kind of, I think she just must have needed some release from it. Yes. Uh, really, which is probably why she's kind of left them behind. You know, because it's revealed that she's given up her singing. Because that's one of the things that she did, you know, while they were at school. You know, she was mm-hmm. the prom queen or the prom idol or something, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's tried to leave all that behind. And that's why she's unhappy, because she's left these things behind and gone on, still tried to stay within music. But it's not yeah. really what her heart what wants want, her to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's kind of living a bit of a lie, isn't she, really? Yeah, exactly. She is. She's living a lie. And, but then Gould and Isamu are just constantly at each other's... This rivalry's kind of never gone away. Mm, and, yeah. and now they're back in contact with each other over the co- mm. this competition to, to pick the next UN Spacey fighter craft. They're, you know, they're, they're back at each other's throats. And, and yeah, it's kind of like fate brings them back together, you know. like the, yeah. It's interesting the way the uh, dynamic between them just constantly shifts, you know. it's um There's moments where you think there might be some sort of resolution and then, you know, something really severe happens like the time he uses the live ammo and that sort of thing, you know. It just feels like there's a back and forth between them all. Yeah, exactly. It's between the two of them constantly. Because there's bits in the movie which, this is where some of the new footage and the reordering, I think, really works so there's a there's a bit where Mion goes back to the concert hall and and Sharon Apple sort of tries to almost bump her off mm. in a fire and Sharon Apple calls both Isamu and Gould but Gould responds and Isamu doesn't mm. and basically you see at this point now 
Isamu is now in bed with the girl from from the Air Force Base. Lucy. Which, Lucy, that's it, that's yeah. the name. Which kind of was hinted at that they yeah. had a sexual relationship in the OBA, but it's very explicit here. Mm. And then the other bit as well, you get the sort of flip side of that is Gould rescues Myung. Mm-hmm. And she sort of patches them up. And then again, it's sort of hinted that they sleep together. Yeah. Then And then mm-hmm. when they first see uh, Isamu and Gould see each other in the um, mess in the Air Force base, you can see Gould's mm. got this kind of smirk because he's he's had that yeah. night with Myung. And, you know, he's kind of got that one thing and he's very cocksure. And mm-hmm. like you say before, he kind of plays it sort of very cool and... Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, he kind it, of feels like he's got the upper hand almost, you know. Yes, exactly. And that, again, it just kind of, that dynamic and that shift. And and the movie, I think, just does those little bits a bit better mm. than, yeah. than the OVA does. And then yeah. when Myung heads back to Earth, kind of there's that saddened look, you know, when she realises that Isamu hasn't shown up. And that's because Lucy's not told him that. Yeah, she's going. That's right. That's quite a pivotal scene because she yeah. she sort of strategically sort of sidesteps that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, and you know it's I think that uh, his kind of relationship with her sort of paints him in a more dim light in the movie as well because you do know that they're definitely sleeping together. It's not just him yeah. that it's a definite. I mean, it's yeah. kind of underlined in the um, OVA version, but you know you know for a definite fact that it's taking place in the uh, movie. So. The fact that he doesn't really seem that bothered about it, really. No, no. It just doesn't paint him in a great light. No, that kind of fits in with his character. Cause he's, it does, though, yeah, because he is... You say the recklessness, doesn't mm. really care. All he cares about is flying. He's flying, yeah. Really, isn't it? Mm. And, yeah. and Myung, eventually, really the kind of love of his life. It's, yeah. you know, along the way, it, it's like, well, if I can't have her, I'll just have whoever's... Ex- well, that's exactly what I was just about to say, is that I think he just does <laughs> kind of feel like, you know, if you if you can't have what he wants, then he'll just have, you know, anyone who's kind of willing to have him, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's pretty, yeah, relaxed in every sort of uh, aspect of life, isn't he, really? He is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, not in that way. <laughs> Um, not in a not in a womanizing way, but no. you know, in a carefree way. So, and that's why they're quite good foils, really, because Gould is super serious. You know, everything by mm. the book takes every test plan with, um, really mm. seriously, and all Isamu's interested in doing is pushing it to the max. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he just wants to sort about, of fly you know. to um, till his heart's content, really, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So another g- key character in this is Sharon Apple, really, mm. as well, because we see her, the AI, evolve. Considerably, yeah, definitely. And there's there's lots of clever little bits in in how that and effectively she's kind of driven by Myung mm-hmm. um, during the concerts. And there's that pivotal bit where Myung sees Isamu in the crowd yes. and sort of has that sort of reaction, and that obviously contaminates Sharon Apple because then as the AI yeah. evolves and Marge gives it the the biochip or whatever. She starts to sort of take on Myung's yes. feelings, doesn't she? Because yeah. she is essentially a kind of based on Myung's brainwaves, and yes. she's kind of patterned on her. Really, she's, she's designed kind of based on aspects of Myung. So when she takes that on, it changes her quite profoundly. Yeah, which kind of um, leads into the finale quite a bit, which won't get into too much the, the spoilers. But yeah, it's it's interesting the way that plays out. And Sharon Apple, with you know, eventually kind of becomes it's a, it's a hypnotic being that t- completely takes over mm. 
somebody and how that plays out in the finale with the bridge captain on the Macross and uh, Isamu's co-pilot and, and even the effect she has on him because mm-hmm. she only wants to make him happy and, and again that's why I think the movie's a bit better mm, as yeah. well because I think it plays that bit out at the ending that's I right think, yeah I th- this, it just this... plays out a bit better I think I think so, yeah. For me, the only thing that's really missing from the uh, movie is the kind of backstory about Ismu being redeployed. Uh, that part, I do feel, is a miss for me, because yeah. I quite like this setup. But um, other than that, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of things to be said for the movie version, definitely. So there's some things in the OVA, the way it plays out compared to the movie, that actually I do prefer in the OVA. The OVA, for me, there's a lot in this film that feels like it's sort of lifted right from the film the right stuff the mm. whole test pilot bit and the, yeah. and the rivalries absolutely um, yeah and some of the montages now in I think I can't remember if it's episode one or two there's like a, a montage mm-hmm. of them training mm-hmm. against alongside each other yeah Isamu and Gould uh, where in the movie it's interlaced with so as they're doing their bit it shows Myung setting up Sharon Apple yeah. Mm-hmm. And that work, I think, actually works quite well. But I really yeah. like the way the music plays, especially in the OVA. It feels like an old Hollywood film. I see there's what a, you mean, yeah. You know, there's a real sort of 70s-ish, I don't know, it's, it feels like classic Hollywood, the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. To, think, to the um, OVA. Yoga Kano is very good at kind of making music that fits the mood of a scene perfectly. Yeah. And, and that, I think that that is a really good point. I hadn't actually thought of that uh, too much about the sort of classic Hollywood feel, but I did think of the right stuff. A lot of people cite Top Gun when they talk about Macross Plus, but I've never really seen that personally, apart from the fact it's about jets. <laughs> yeah. Jet fighters, I don't really think that really kind of fits uh, its, its sort of tone or what it's about really, like, too much. It's interesting, the uh, connection with old Hollywood, because I hadn't really picked up on that, yeah. The test pilot bits of it at the base, up until the point where they come to Earth, very, very much feels, you know, I get a lot, because I love the right stuff, it's, mm. it's, it's a favourite film. I've not seen in a long time, actually, but, uh, yeah, I can definitely see parallels between the two. And that training montage, so to speak, as they're sort of running through the test programme, mm. and again in episode four, where the dogfight between the YF-19 and 21, when they're on Earth, again, that scene fits really well with the other sort of dogfight scenes, because it, mm. it just has that... Let's say with the music that plays has a very very classic Hollywood feel to me, which I think is lost a little bit in the film uh, because mm. of the way it sort of re-edits some of those right. scenes. The whole thing just kind of oozes quality though, doesn't it? You know, it's it like does. It, yeah, it has. There's a lot of it that has a kind of filmic quality, mm. just because the whole thing is just such top tier. You know, it's it kind of like in terms of characters, in terms of animation, in terms of everything really. Every single time I watch it, I'm kind of taken back by just how good it is really yeah absolutely absolutely because i think it does i think you know all those things we've talked about you know framing character development it really is is quite a short because the, the oda if you kind of take the end you know endings off and everything else it's it's only just over two hours really mm. the movie's just under two hours so it's not a lot but it does so much you know it's yeah. very great character development great story <laughs> development the way it builds tension and atmosphere and yeah like I said, you can't really say anything that hasn't been said about uh, Yoko Kano's music before no no exactly yeah I mean <laughs> she is a genius you know the one thing I will say about the movie though is I do prefer the ending in the movie that yes, little I do as well the little the, the kind of, of little, coda 
yeah, and the little epilogues at the end after Isamu has crashed into um, the Macross. Mm-hmm. Um, and those little scenes, I, th- I think, just finishes it off. And I think Gould's death Definitely. is much better. Yeah, definitely. It's, I think it's got a bit more weight to it in the um, yeah. in the in, in the uh, movie version. But I think that uh, it just feels like a nice bookend, like you say, like a nice yeah. kind of epilogue to everything you've seen. And it kind of, I don't know, it just it just has more weight in general. I think just because there's more of a kind of aftermath, if you like, there's more about what. Yes. Yeah, exactly. like you say, like a kind of epilogue or coda. Because the, I don't think the OVA ends. I don't think it's a bad ending, but it's a bit quick. But mm-hmm. it works, you know, it, it, yeah. it's fine. But those those few little bits that they put into the movie, mm-hmm. um, I think just really, oh, I don't know, it just closes it out. a little extra something, doesn't it, then? Yeah. Well, often I sort of feel, you know, with kind of, you know, movie versions, um, because often they're condensed and don't add anything to you, I generally, apart from the Gundam trilogy, yeah. I generally don't like a lot of them very much. I kind of mm. feel like I'd rather watch the TV series. But in this case, I'm kind of glad we've got both because it'll be, yeah. you know, they do give you something a little bit different, which is nice. Uh, sometimes I'm kind of in the mood for the movie version. Sometimes I'm in the mood for the OVA version. It kind of depends how I'm feeling, really. Yeah, it's interesting because the, the movie definitely works better as a movie. Um, <laughs> I know it's, it's weird to say that, but it does. You know, it just blows. <laughs> oh, exactly, indeed, yeah. Because I, I actually got to see this at the Barbican last September. Um, yes, yeah, I would, would um, love to have made that. Yeah, it was a bit of a shame I couldn't make that one. Carry on. And, you know, I got to meet some of the people that listen to us or follow us on Twitter, which was good. But, you know, it just it was great to sit there on a cinema screen with a good sound system and, and, and watch it mm. on a really big screen. You know, it was a, it just really, really worked. I um, imagine it would be quite an experience, like, definitely, yeah. And I think the way it builds up, and again, the other bit that I think works well with the movie is putting that scene when they're kids or teenagers or whatever over the end credits mm. or the start of the end credits, I think, rather than the beginning of the... Mm. OVA, you know, at the start of the first episode of the OVA, mm-hmm. I think that you know works better. Before we get into sort of a sign of thoughts now, but we painted a little bit at you know some of the production, how good it looks, and mm. you know we've absolutely got to talk about how good this looks. Yeah, we do. We really do. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. the animation in this, and especially on Blu-ray, it, I mean, it is just. I mean, it's up there with Akira and Do You mm. Remember Love. I mean, it is just. Yeah phenomenally good looking in every single moment i mean it's from the very beginning it's visually amazing whether you yeah. watch depending on which version you're watching obviously you see different scenes first but in the uh ova like the first shot of dyson and his valkyrie in combat is yeah. so fluid yeah and there are parts of the animation that's so fast it's almost difficult for your eyes to keep up with what's yeah, going on yeah. the screen i was when i first saw it on um manga video on vhs i remember just like being absolutely stunned by those dogfights and just thinking yeah. to myself, like, there's so much going on. I feel like I need to, like, re-watch bits. You know, like, yeah, that was the first yeah. time I'd had that experience. I think, you know, another thing um, that kind of pops up is, it was my kind of first introduction to uh, digital effects as well. And, right, and, okay. And, you know, they were they were kind of, like I say, they were subtly done. But I was quite impressed by those two. Mm. When I sort of re-watched it a few years ago, um, before we started to do this review, I watched it a couple of years back as well. I was quite surprised, like yourself, you know, that it didn't look terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it actually did look quite good. And I think they just made the wise decision to use it sparingly. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, the dogfights and all the jet scenes, I mean, it's proper otaku sort of mechanical porn, this idea. Yeah. And, of I course, mean, all the, uh, the missile uh, stuff, which Macross is known for. Is yeah, funny. yeah, the multiple missile attacks, because that happens several times through, well, both versions. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, 
and it's just amazing but there's a, there's a bit where we're introduced to the the yf-21 and gould sat on the the ramp mm-hmm. and he's like flexing the wings and the vectoring plates mm-hmm. on the on the jet nozzles and stuff like that i mean it's just fantastic and yeah and all the way through, like the little mechanical details when the jets are flying, and you know you yeah, can see the flaps like, move and and stuff. Yeah, there's all these like you know you mentioned the uh, sort of the kind of readouts on the screens, you know the yeah, digital yeah. displays and all the kind of like things that are scanning and all the data that's flying past with Gold's uh, craft because it kind of uses it kind of maps his brain in it. Yeah. It's got this thing on his head, and there's all this kind of light coming off it. And yeah. It's kind of like all these patterns and stuff, and that looks really intricate as well. And yeah, there's times absolutely. when you see things moving on his head and that sort of yeah. stuff. It, it's just, it is really like kind of, it's like got so much detail to it, it's kind of mind boggling at times. Yeah, because there's a bit where, um, the bit where Gould is falling out of the sky and Isamu is falling with him and he's told to capture him. Isamu's jet, if you look at it, you can just subtly see the flaps all adjusting to, to mm. keep, you know, rather than just being a static aircraft. Mm. falling alongside Gould's aircraft the detail in the realism and, and all the flaps adjusting to, to maintain its sort of posture and position and, and everything and, yeah. and attitude it's all those little things and it's it's from start to finish that sort of detail <laughs> yeah. all the way through as you said the fluidity of all the jets moving mm. about in all the battles every action scene I mean it's like there is no corners cut in this whatsoever. definitely not definitely not it's a uh... I mean, it's there are times uh, when you just can't stop sort of focusing on these little yeah, kind of things I and being like, the, I mean, when I, I think when I first watched it, I, was, I can't remember which year it came out. It was in the 90s, obviously. Yeah, but when it came out on Manga Video, I remember like watching it and kind of, I think there was one or two bits where I kind of rewound some things. I wasn't focused yeah, so much on the I was, plot. I was kind of thinking about what I was actually seeing on screen. I was like, oh, what did this say? I was just just waiting yeah, so I, I could know. get the dialogue. <laughs> I have the same, and even now, when I was watching it for this occasion, I'd sit there just be engrossed in in the visuals, you know, and, and be like, oh yeah, there's a you know the story there's sort a, of there's thing. There's a plot I need to make notes about, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's just, I mean, it is gorgeous. I mean, it is one of the best looking things you will ever see. In that era, you know, there just seem to be so many um, great sort of examples of at this kind of insane level of detail. Yeah, definitely. It was like kind of mind-blowing you know the the mechanical detail the sort of all the kind of inner workings of the craft on display and all that sort of thing and it's just stunning it seems to just have such incredible passion behind it yeah it feels like a real passion project i mean i don't know if it's something to do with the fact that obviously we there are a few different animation techniques even though things are hand-drawn there's still different techniques and things these days yes. but maybe that sort of all those old attack animation techniques and the passion that those people had yeah combined to make something really special it was like all these people just came together to make something really amazing whereas today i sort of feel although we still have really great animation maybe the industry's a bit more of a slog now you know maybe yeah. you hear about people getting ill and you know that's always been a thing but certainly it feels a bit more corporate now producing stuff to a time scale and yeah i think this kind of goes back to what we talked about in the introduction and that comment from mike tool and part of the decline for mecca was that these people there aren't the people there that can draw it anymore and I think this is an exact pinnacle. Like you say, there's a real passion. Because when you look at things like this, you look at the Pat Labour movies, Ghost in the Shell movies, Akira. When you look at that mechanical detail that was in it, because if you think where this is, because it's quite interesting to talk about, you know, when we look at the context of where this sits within mm. the history of where it was. 
So, you know, I've said before on, on this podcast that I think, you know, around the sort of 84-ish mark was when mm-hmm. animation started to get really, really good. Yeah, you know, if you look at like, up again, yeah, yeah. TV shows generally seem to get a bit better and everything else. There was a bit mm. more detail, a bit more fluidity. And that mid-80s point, I'm not quite sure, you know, I can't quite find anything that says why this is. But for me, it's quite noticeable. Around that 84, 83, 84 to 85, there was just some step change in animation quality. And stuff mm. started to get really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, if you look at what we talked about in the previous episode in those, you know, with Dangayo and Demons of Steel, you know, there's some really, through the late, you know, mid to late 80s, you know, there's mm. some, you, know, you get that really gorgeous detailed OVA animation. And I think this kind of feels like almost, it kind of gets to that pinnacle. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, and the level of detail, you know, the missile attacks and all the fine little detail. And if you look at all this stuff, like I say, with the Pat Labour, movies and everything you know people really enjoy drawing nozzles moving even in the the pat labor tv series so it's always a scene i remember with the griffin where it lights up it's like afterburners it's like Mm -hmm. quite late in the tv and like the detail in the thrust Mm. you know as the nozzle opens up i mean it's amazing but people loved to draw and animate that stuff yeah, I think so. I think it was just like these, you know, these people who lived and breathed this stuff and probably dreamt about it, you know. Yeah. And <laughs> it was like, up, oh, I've got an idea for uh, an extra bit of mechanical design. I'll just sketch it down by my bedside. <laughs> you know, where the wings move and everything, you know, we've kind of mm. talked about that with, with the mecha, you know, and mm-hmm. you can see on the on the 21 where he's flexing the wings and you can see the wings change shape and bow. There's absolute minute detail in that. To get mm. that there's, right, you know, and there's it's, so much love and kind of yeah. um, passion in it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It, it shows on the screen. There's just so many examples of that, you know, from the 80s to the 90s where you're just like, wow, these people were absolutely 100% on top of the game. Yeah. And, you know, the integration of the CG, you know, it, it kind of fits. As we've said, it, so, it fits in there. It's not overdone. And I think when the industry started to get to the late 90s and into the early 2000s when, you know, the DigiPaint and the, mm. the computer-generated stuff came in. I think, yeah, I think he kind of lost that. I, I don't know whether the techniques they were using meant that doing this stuff was really hard. Mm. And that's kind of when people maybe lost them. The thing is, the genres that are popular today are completely different, really, mm. to when they were 20 years, 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, and that shift, yeah, I don't know whether, because like you say, this is, there's pa- people who are really passionate about mm. animating this detail. Yeah. And they've gone all out to make it look amazing. And and I love that detail. You know, our sort of generation who grew up on that stuff and some of these amazing AVAs. And, you know, we're very fortunate now to see this stuff on like Blu-ray rather than yeah. crappy VHSs that we saw on bad CRTs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back you know, in the day, yeah. Back in the day, you know, we've got really nice, you know, really high definition, really clear flat screens with the media. So I feel very fortunate I live in an age where I can see this stuff in all its yeah. glory. Um, definitely, definitely. So, but yeah, it's definitely a thing of its time. And yeah, like I say, I think there were just people at the time, they were just those sort of mechanical otaku themselves who just, mm. like you say, I think probably just dreamt about this stuff. Yeah, they just put the heart and soul in. Yeah, because I think there's a few things in this that make me think Kawamori really wanted to sort of stick two fingers up at Macross 2. Because mm. actually, Macross 2, as we said 
in in looks our review good. that it looks pretty good, and then this just like not blows it out of the water, it blows it out of the water and knocks it into a cocked hat. <laughs> or sh- or uh, should it be uh, sort of shoots it out of the sky? Maybe yeah, it does exactly. It does shoot <laughs> it out of the sky. And there's um the bit where they're doing the karaoke and Kate is singing "My Boyfriend's a Pilot." Yeah, they sort of call back that. Yeah, I think that's a very clever thing to say. No, actually, this is the proper. Yeah, across timeline, and it does this is feel, the link to you know. It does feel like a bit of a cheeky sort of, um, yeah, not just the yeah. tip of the hat to the original Macross, but a little sort of bit of derision to yeah. Macross too, and say, yeah, this is the real sequel, isn't it? We all know that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, there's, I, I think there was a few bits like that when when you watch it that you think, yeah, he was definitely having a bit of a poke at Macross too. I would definitely. say so, definitely. There's another bit in this, and and this is a scene that appears in in both, and. I hadn't really picked up on it before until I was watching the anime for, for this review. Then when they've got to Earth and they're having their dogfight around that city, mm-hmm. that city's inhabited. It's covered in lights. So when they're shooting it up, are they just committing mass murder? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's weird because I was thinking the similar thing. I was thinking, like, you know, are they just kind of destroying landmarks? Is anyone actually getting hurt in this? But... You remember in the original Macross, there's a, there's a similarly kind of weird bit where um, Hikaru crashes into um, buildings and you see somebody just get like thrown out of the frame. Yeah. You know, like they wildly kind of fly through the air and there's no way they could survive that. So you think, I mean, he, he's he obviously crashes and he doesn't do it on purpose. So it's kind yeah. of, you know, it's not like he's hurting people on purpose, but still, yeah, yeah. this is two scenes in the sort of franchise where somebody probably gets killed through no fault of their own, you know? Yeah, it's just when I was first watching it, I was just like, first of all, it kind of looks on the outskirts of somewhere, but then mm. it's like all the lights are on. You know, mm. this isn't a deserted town. This is a, an active, and you see cars and stuff on the roads. Maybe and that's the like, question that should have been put to uh, Kawamori at the uh, Q and A at the Barbican. Somebody should have asked him. Yeah, someone should have asked him that. <laughs> when I was watching it, I was just like, <laughs> hang, hang on a minute, they committed mass murder here. <laughs> Or at least destroying a lot of uh, hardware. A lot of property or, uh, or or something. Comedy, yeah. yeah, I just don't know. It's just one of those things I kind of picked up on. I don't think I've really ever picked up on it before, but it was like... I haven't thought about it until recently, to be honest with you. I mean, watching it twice uh, recently, I, I don't think I'd really thought about that too much. Again, maybe it's another thing of focusing on the sort of visuals and things and not really thinking about, you know, the kind of <laughs> bigger picture, yeah. I don't know. But yeah, it's, that did kind of strike me as well. It is a funny um, point. Yeah. But it's certainly one that needs a bit more clarification, I think. <laughs> if anyone yeah, speaks Japanese on Twitter, yeah. Karamori, and ask them what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I was very, very surprised. YF19 or 21, which one's your favourite? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. I've, there is something I quite like. The 21, I think, I think I just sort of edges it for me a little bit. Mm. I quite like the fact that with the sort of mecha design and the certainly the plain design of the two mm-hmm. that they kind of really you know the 19 was the sort of lo- the logical evolution of the valkyrie yeah and then with the 21 they went and did something a bit more different you know the shapes yeah. a bit mm, sleeker know, and more bit, futuristic yeah something. you know when you look at the evolution of fighter jets and you look at what the sort of the very latest migs were doing and the <laughs> f-22 you know and everything where you know you've got the sort of much sort of sleeker body and you know the shape of the wings and everything yeah you know they kind of moved that they kind of was like yes the 19 follows the very traditional sort of historical fighter jet shape 
but mm. you know it's definitely the fighter jet of the future type designs mm. that were certainly coming around in the mid 90s or early 90s yeah you know and, and mm. a lot of nations america especially and and russia were were really sort of progressing on next generation um fighter jets yeah and i think that's what works with the story because you've mm. got that you kind of bridge in the gap in evolution of the Valkyrie, aren't you? Because they're, they're choosing yes, exactly. with what's going to be the successor and the yeah. mass-produced kind of fighter model. Yeah. So you've reached this point where the old sort of Valkyries are no longer in service. And actually, there's quite a funny gag involved in that because when they're shooting at targets, you see one of the old Valkyrie Very models from, from the original TV series, that's don't right, you? That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's quite a nice, again, a nice little nod to the, uh, yeah. to the original series. Absolutely, Because, yeah. you know, the, the 21, you know, it's got its thrust vector in, which was a technology that next-generation jets were, you know, using in real life. Um, mm. You know, the Russians were experimenting with that and the Americans very heavily. The change in the shape of the wings, the, you know, the thought control, because, you know, if you think of Firefox, the Clint Eastwood film and the... yeah. You know, that was all sort of thought control and, and everything mm. as well. So, you know, sci-fi and sort of military movies were going down that kind of route, weren't they? Yeah. And I mean, not being um, an engineer like yourself, I don't really, I, and I'm not really that knowledgeable about planes, but I do know what I like. And I think that uh, the year 21 is just has this sort of really cool futuristic look about it. It does, yeah. Um, and the robot mode is really cool as well, the battleroid mode. Yeah. The head of the battleroid mode I particularly like. It just has a bit of a different sort of... Uh, look to uh, some of the other Valkyries. I think YF-19, plane-wise, plane um, looks more like the sort of traditional mm. one. A little bit more kind of space age, I guess, but it's less futuristic than the, uh, than the 21. Yeah I, yeah, I like the way they tried to evolve it, you mm, know. Definitely, yeah. And I think that was a, a really, really nice touch. I mean, ultimately, both of them got superseded by an autonomous, you know, mm. the, you know, the Ghost, Ghost Disc pilot, 9. yeah. And everything, but I thought it w- worked really well. But yeah, the 21, just the, the overall shape of it, it's really sleek, you know, especially in that dark bluey, purpley mm. sort of colour. Yeah. You know, just, yeah, yeah, the colour is, is a big point, big, big, big factor about why I like the uh, 21 yeah, as well. Just, I think that really makes it sort of pop. You know, and when, um, and you know, they do the animation beautifully, you know, when they're flexing the wings in it, when he's mm. all the different shapes. And he uses that in combat, you know, to help, you know, with the manoeuvrability along with the, the um, thrust vector. And it's, it, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just an awesome, yeah. awesome bit of kit. Like, um, like you mentioned, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a sort of crazy level of detail in things like the intake valves and the sort of all yeah. the little moving parts. It's kind of almost pornographic. Yeah. Right? You know, it's like yeah. really obsessing over this stuff. Yeah, it's, um, it's really, really um, incredible. But, yeah, it's it's got to be the... It's got to be the 21. It's, just, here, it's yeah. just a really, really exceptional aircraft design. And it, it edges it for me. And it, I think, you know, for me, the uh, the Batroid mode is my favourite of the two yeah, as well. Yeah. So definitely the 21. Yeah, it's in um, Batroid mode, it has got quite a menacing sort of look, mm. the way the wings sit on it and stuff. And the kind of chest plate part, it just... Yeah, it, looks, it's just it looks like it could be a kind of enemy design in a show, doesn't it? Yeah, it, like it, it does, yeah. Kind of evil one. Yeah, it's quite a menacing look. And I think in Batroid mode, it looks far more uh, menacing than the sort of than the 19s Batroid mm. mode. Yeah, um, I it's, agree with you. It's certainly a, a more sort of menacing, sinister sort of ambience of look, and you know the the sort of threat that it projects. Yeah, is like mm-hmm. I say, much more menacing than the 19s. I haven't got really much more to add to the review there. I think it's just exceptionally good. Mm. Unfortunately, 
it isn't available in the West. Mangler's license for this is um I love that phrase. I love that phrase. <laughs> I know. It's Mangler, so it's so suited, isn't it? <laughs> I hadn't actually heard that phrase before I used it in the, uh, I think it was the Dank I.O. review you used it yeah, in, and that, that did make us chuckle. It's, it's very apt. Very apt yeah, I think. can't take credit for it. I I, um, <laughs> I picked, I stole it from some other podcast or some article I was reading, and someone was talking about Mangler releases, and I was like, yeah, that's like, that's, that's so apt. apt. Video, it's so yeah. apt. Especially <laughs> of the, the original. Not so much Mangler these days, but that's Not so much of, these days, but definitely yeah. from the, the Manga Entertainment days mm. in the 90s. There was know. a lot of OVAs turned into uh, sort of, you know, movies and bits <laughs> cut things. And censorship was a lot worse back then, so some of it was censorship and some of it was uh, the fact that they're just like, oh, let's just turn this for episode into a movie just because we can. And it doesn't really work that way, but we'll shove it together. Why yeah, not? it fits better on a single VHS tape. So, and it costs uh, us less money, so let's go with it. Yeah, let's go with it, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so unfortunately, their license is gone. There's no official release of this. There is a Japanese Blu-ray, which was a limited run, but I think it got a re-release, but it doesn't yeah. have the Japanese track on it. It's just got the English or Japanese tracks. It's got no subtitles. Um, That's right, yeah. I think I think maybe the movie might have had... Um, the movie like had uh, subtitles. Subtitles, yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, but the, but yeah, but the OVA was just English language only. So if you're after the complete package, it might be... Yeah, but does I'm late to out of print now anyway, so... Yeah, and, you know, with the whole thing with Harmony Gold, and I don't get how... Um, yeah, it's probably not much Harmony hope. Gold relicensing all that stuff. I don't mm. I don't understand how that deal happened. No, neither do I. It's a strange yeah, Harmony Gold carried it on. I mean, plus in the original, uh, two of my most kind of wanted anime Blu-rays, really. Yeah. I would love to own both of those, and Do You Remember Love, of course, as well. Yeah. So that's, like, the top three kind of... Um, well... Maybe not the top three all-time anime, but certainly the top three Macross ones that I would like, which I can see pretty much everyone's being the same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, so no surprises there. But certainly I would love to have those, and uh, it sort of feels like a big gap in the collection without them, really. It does, I've yeah. got kind of quite crappy DVDs of uh, Macross Plus, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I've got those Mangler DVDs still mm. as well. Um, I can't quite bear to get rid of them, really. Same here, um, yeah. Even though I've actually watched a Blu-ray rip of this, just to, to mm. really enjoy it in all its Same glory. Here. But, you know, I'd love to own a proper Western physical release of, of this. I, I really, yeah. really would. Yeah, like I say, you know, I really struggled to say anything bad about them. They're almost perfect. Yeah, I agree. Um, um, unmissable, I, I would say. Unmissable, yeah. I mean, I can't recommend this enough. And I think... Yes, it's an action OVA, but the drama, the character drama, is good enough in this that I think yeah. I, you, if you're a fan of something like Top Gun, um, mm. or I'm trying to think of other sort of action films that maybe have a bit of a love story, I can't think of anything. But it's not just about; it's really about the love triangle. It really you know, is. Cla- I mean, the, there's probably equal parts kind of drama and action. Well, it's probably a bit more yeah. drama than there is action, but certainly, yeah, yeah. you'll get your fix of both. Is put it that way. Yeah, you know, it looks beautiful. Like I say, the sort of cinematography in it is really, really good. The writing's good. There's never a dull moment. I feel like we've often discussed Mecha on this show that would appeal to non-Mecha fans. Yeah. You know, there's been been a couple of things that we've discussed that I don't think, you know, are necessarily just for diehard Mecha fans, and I think this is one of them. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree with you there. I mean, I've got a friend who's kind of more casually into anime, and, and he's seen Macross Plus, and he's not watched any of the rest of the Macross franchise. Yeah. And I've seen a few people on Twitter who, who aren't really Macross fans, but they're kind of saying, you know, that Macross Plus has made them 
think more about getting into it. And I can see it being quite a good gateway drug because you don't really need the background of the other ones particularly. It's nice to have that and to get the little references and things, you know, know a bit more about the Zentradi and, uh, you know, like the little reference to my boyfriend is a pile, that sort of thing. Yeah. But you don't really need it to appreciate it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, actually. Um, that had occurred to me while watching this. You could actually watch this without having seen the original TV series mm. or the, or the um, Do You Remember Love Me? But I think it's, yeah. it's reasonably self-contained enough and almost self-explanatory that you could get away with them. Um, with yeah. I mean, certainly my friend Scott, like, definitely... He seems to have like fully kind of like appreciated everything about it and it's kind of one of his favourites despite yeah. you know, kind of not seeing some of the other stuff and he, he really like sort of loves the story of it. So I think it's for that reason it must kind of work on its own. Yeah, definitely. I think overall I, I if I had to pick one, I, I, the movie does work a bit better for me mm. than the OVA or the, the serialized. Probably, probably has a slightly better flaw. I do miss the uh, the beginning scenes as I mentioned, but I think that yeah. Yeah, it's hard to kind of rate them for me. I think that I kind of want to give them both a 10 out of 10. Yeah. Because um, I can't really see big flaws in either of them, to be honest with you. Like I said, there are some subtle differences, but um, certainly they're uh, they're both very, very good. Yeah, I mean, I feel that I kind of have to give the OVA 9.5 and, and the film mm. 10, because as I, I, I say, I think the movie just, uh, you know, personally, it I just, I just think it works a bit better. I think the mm. narrative works a bit better, and and I'm pretty sure Karamori he deliberately sort of re-edited some of that, you know, because he had a bit of maybe the benefit of a little bit of hindsight with the OVA. It's like, well, actually, maybe I'm not happy with that and that, and this is really mm. the story I wanted to tell. Yeah, um, and it, and it, it that kind of it does feel a bit like that with just the way that mm. the events play out to each other. I see what um, you mean. Yeah, it's um, with the little epilogue and, and everything. I think it's just a it's just a better narrative mm. over two hours. I probably go when I go for ratings. I probably I think the way I approach them is I tend to like you know knock points off for like flaws that I consider pretty big. Yeah. So for me, I'd probably go for a 10 for both in a strange way. I know that probably yeah, sounds I, a little bit like contradictory, but I just don't see big flaws in either of them. No, there. I mean, there isn't. I, I, they are almost perfect. Um, mm. you know, so I, I think I, I, would, yeah. I would probably say, you know, just 10 out of 10 for both, and just because yeah. I like both of them for different reasons. Yeah. So that's kind of my justification where I sort yeah, of feel like enough. sometimes I'm in the mood for the movie, sometimes I'm in the mood for the OVA. <laughs> yeah, like I say, there, there are those few bits in the OVA, the, the way the, the montage and the beginning bit plays mm. out. But yeah, I, I'm going to go with nine and a half and ten. Mm. I, say, okay. I, I do just prefer the movie version mm. of it. I, I really do. But neither of them is, you know, I, I watched them again this week just to prepare. It's just not a chore to watch these. No, definitely not. The length helps with this um, mm. because it's not particularly long. But, you know, I've watched it over and over in the last sort of 20 what three four years or, or whatever you know it's just yeah. so easy to watch yeah, and i never tire of watching it you know it's, same here. it's just fantastic so mm-hmm. yeah i mean <laughs> yeah you've got to watch it i mean it's you absolutely i do. couldn't recommend biggest, this more really biggest recommendation from both of us yeah absolutely
So now on to Macross Zero. Macross Zero is a five episode OVA released between 2002 and 2004. This was a 20th anniversary project directed by Shoji Kawamori with animation production by Satellite. The character designs, other than the original designs by Mikimoto, was by Takuya Saito, and the music was by Kuniaki Hashima. Shin Kudo, a Valkyrie fighter pilot for the UN, is shot down by enemy forces and crash lands on an island known as Maya. There he meets sisters Sarah and Malnorm, who share a mysterious bond with the ancient ways of the island, and may in fact be the key to Shin's enemies unlocking the secrets of an incredible alien technology. So... Macross Zero is effectively a prequel to the original TV series. And to be honest, is one of my biggest kind of problems with it. I, wa- I watched this about 11 years ago because it was just before I, I changed jobs at the, at the end of the decade. So it was about 10, 11 years ago uh, that I watched this. And I wasn't particularly enamoured with it then, partly mm. because of didn't feel like it fitted in with the whole Macross yes. universe. I know exactly what you mean. For me, it's a fr- it's frustrating because I like elements of it, and I think that it's nice that you get a little bit of background about the unification wars and things like that. Yes, definitely. But in terms of it's a, it's quite a big sort of tonal shift in terms of the Macross saga in general. It is, yeah. I mean, we've no longer really got any focus on the Zentradi. It's totally different, sort of about the mythology and everything. We've still got Valkyries and. You know, Roy Fokker makes an appearance, but really, other than that, it doesn't really feel connected to the sort of mainline saga in many ways. No, it doesn't at all. And like what we've talked sort of previously in in these reviews, is you know how having seen all this stuff much closer together. Because again, when I saw this, I probably hadn't seen much other Macross stuff close to it. But mm-hmm. watching it now, all the other stuff. That we, so certainly the other two OPAs we've watched certainly feel very much part of the Macross universe. Yeah. And this doesn't. This this feels really, really on its own. Mm, yes, I, I agree. I mean, as a sort of Macross series, it doesn't quite sort of fit in. And it's it's frustrating because it doesn't really kind of gel with the rest of the series. No, and one of the things I get frustrated about with stuff like this is this, this kind of retconning of stuff so mm. in the original tv series it like didn't talk about these aliens or the bird man yeah or anything exactly. and yet yeah now we're retconning it's a major part of the mythology yeah because you yeah, think I mean, it'd be fairly significant because you know part of the mythology is uh, one of the things they go on about is the bird man or the aliens created human life which you'd mm-hmm. think would be kind of fairly fundamental in shaping mm. humanity as it fought the Zentradi. Exactly, especially since the Zentradi and humans are genetically connected as well. Yes, exactly. So yeah, you... I mean, like, that's a kind of revelation. Sorry, spoil on that if you haven't sort of seen the original show. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the fact that there's, there's a link there, that, you know, that should retie into the mythology more. Because this, this Birdman that you mentioned, um, which is also referred to by the military as Air Force, which is like stands for Artifact from Outer Space, the whole sort of story hinges around the discovery of exactly what it is and what it's capable of, and the, the two sisters link to it. For that to kind of, you know, not be kind of mentioned previously, it does seem like a pretty big 
thing to just sort of drop in so so late. I mean, like, as you mentioned, <laughs> it was the 20th anniversary project. That would be like 20 years after Gundam merging and sticking new types into the mix. Yeah, exactly. Way, way after the case. Exactly. Instead of in the original show. Because when the original Macross crashed down on Earth, you think with another alien artifact from space, mm-hmm. you think having had this other artifact, the Aphos there, it would shape and would... You've got all this other stuff that doesn't mention mention mm. it because I'm pretty sure like seven doesn't make any mention of it as well and seven I don't came think before. so no um, um, it's been I, a long time since I've seen it's, seven it's been a long time since I've seen seven as well but we'll and, be talking about that so I'm sure we can review that when we, we get into uh, but I'm I'm pretty certain it doesn't mm. talk about yeah, any, say, yeah. <laughs> anything they've it's been dreamt up for for this OVA and it just doesn't kind of fit and as you say I mean it's interesting what they they try to tie it by bringing mm. back Roy Fokker and mm-hmm. you've seen a, a, a younger Roy mm-hmm. yeah. Fokker, you know, and you get a little bit more about it, which we'll talk about a bit later. Yeah, you get sure. a little bit more about his background and, mm-hmm. and what he was like when he was younger and stuff. So part of me thinks because they've done something quite left field with the story, is it like, mm-hmm. oh, if we don't do something that completely ties it in, then it will feel mm-hmm. completely yeah. abstract. My opinion hasn't changed very much since I first watched it because I, I feel that when I first watched it, Roy and the sort of you know the Valkyries and the kind of mention of the unification wars and things were all that was really kind of tying it to mm. uh, to Macross and yeah. it could have actually been a different sci-fi series if it wasn't for that you know yeah it kind of it kind of feels like it actually may have been better had it been its own thing in yeah. many ways for for my money yeah I I get I, I agree with you there I think that's a that's a really good point because like you say apart from that kind of few minutes at the beginning where it it talks about the um unification wars and and everything it's it's almost yeah it could almost be its own thing and uh, it, yeah and possibly would have worked better i think if they'd done the timeline maybe but to try and sort of retcon it before the tv series i think kind mm. of feels like a massive mistake um, I think the prologue for me would have been more interesting if it had focused on the unification wars themselves. To be yes, honest. absolutely. You know, I think the paranoia about this alien craft turning up and sending people sort of crazy, you know, the, all the paranoia about the fact there's other life out there and what the hell else could, yeah, could possibly exactly. be out there yeah. beyond the stars could, you know, cause a lot of sort of panic and have people sort of shooting at each other. And you could create some really effective sort of world building with that and, you know, go somewhere with that. That would have been more interesting possibly. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think that, that could have been a far more uh, interesting sort of premise for an OVA. I mean, it's got the love triangle between mm-hmm. Mao, Sarah and Shin, so it kind of maintains that bit. You know, as we've said, yeah, it's cool. quite, having watched all this stuff together, it's quite common there are a few things that are common denominators for a Macross series. It's got multiple missile attacks and it's got some quite good dogfights. So mm-hmm. yeah. it's kind of got those elements in it. The other thing for me with the story... It's kind of like quite cryptic in many yeah, ways. And I always feel in the post-Evangelion era, everything yeah. tried to become a little bit more mysterious and a little bit more cryptic. Yeah, the stuff about the um, artifact from outer space and its effect on everything and this quite apocalyptic kind of event that happens at the end yes. feels a bit sort of Ava inspired a little bit. Yeah. It's quite different, but I think maybe there is a bit of a ghost of Ava in there somewhere, like a bit yeah, of influence well, from... It was just this thing, a lot of, sort of, certainly a lot of sort of mecha anime that, that came out in the late 90s and early 2000s. 
there was a lot of like kind of build a lot of mystery into it brain powers yeah. argento soma you know mm-hmm. razafan even Day, things like that you know they're always like it's mm. it's got to be super mysterious it's got to be super cryptic you know, there's yeah, this really mysterious some, thing and no one knows what it is or what it's doing. A lot of them like to stick something metaphysical in, sort of yes. philosophical in there, as well as having, yes. you know, like the kind of psychological aspect of people's kind of minds and delving into the psyches of the pilots and things. Exactly. And I get that feeling in this. It's like in, in the post-Eva era, it's like, oh, well, we've got to kind of make it We've got a to bit make more it edgy up. and, and, and yeah. all the rest of it and a bit more mystic. And I don't quite like that bit of it because I think it... Mm. I hate using the word pretentious, but it feels pretentious in mm. some ways. I um, see what you mean, yeah. It, it didn't really need that. I suppose it just... It was almost like they couldn't just make old-school macros anymore. They needed to do mm. something Absolutely. to bring it more up to date. Yes. And perhaps fit into kind of, you know, people's sort of tastes at the time. Which was probably a mistake, you know, looking back at it. As we said, it's been a long time since I've seen Seven. And then after Seven, there was a load of follow-on movies. There was Across Seven Plus and a movie and some other spin-offs and stuff. So ran through the end of the, the 90s. You, you know, you had all the, the Macross Seven timeline, which you mm-hmm. know, kind of followed on from Plus. So I wonder, without having seen it again, I I wonder if there was a, a bit of a desire to like, well, we've, we've done this thing, you know, from plus to the end of whatever the, the various spin-offs of seven. It's like, well, yeah. there's six years of that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we just need to go and do something completely different. So it doesn't feel just another kind of yeah. spin. Another retread, another retread. Exactly. And it's the 20th anniversary project. So you probably want to make it a bit special as well yeah, exactly, you know something yeah. that's that it is its own thing for the for the anniversary looking back sort of 20 years back on it now i'm a bit like oh i'm not sure uh yeah kind of it what it was kind of what it was doing almost where mm. it was where it was trying to go with it yeah maybe it is very much a product of its time i mean mm. you mentioned um earlier on in the macros plus review that uh, the character design as well is quite sort of indicative of its era that it appeared in too yeah definitely because it's kind of, um, you know, it's moving away from Mikamoto stuff. Yes. And ma- moving more towards the uh, the sort of designs that were more prevalent in the early 2000s. Yeah, very much so. And on on that same sort of uh, note, speaking about the early 2000s, this was the kind of era when um, a lot of uh, CG started to pop yeah, up. Yeah, definitely. And uh, we have Valkyries here, like, you know, fully animated in CG. Yeah. For, like, the first time. Which isn't ent- entirely successful. I think at the time... It was probably quite impressive. But looking back, I mean, the, the the opening bit of episode one where you do get like the dogfights and it mixes between CG and cell animation, I think just looks horrible. Yeah, it does. I really, I, mean, I really, the first episode especially, I think looks, yeah. looks dreadful. There are points when it gets away with it. I think there's there's some points that where I think it actually looks okay, but I think it's got a few and far between. They do have for the time. A good kind of like, I mean, when you look at CG at the time, they had like a decent sort of movement. I mean, it was, yeah, at the time it was something that was quite good. But I think, you know, now when you see how CG is now, it has dated mm. quite badly. Mm. I mean, there's, there's a sort of fluidity to it, the speed to it that looks quite good. But it's, and it's at least it did at the time. But I think now, unfortunately, you know, looking at it in the sort of frame of what we have now. Yeah. 
It's no, it's not too great. Yeah, I mean, it just... very much sticks out, like a lot of CG anime at the time. I mean, um, the the mechs really stick out against the backgrounds and stuff. Mm. And even when the backgrounds are CG and things, and like you know, they use like sort of CG in other things in the same scene, it still doesn't quite look right. Yeah, I think I think there is a a real distinction Discon- between and a disconnect as well. Yeah, between the CG and the cell animation. I think it's really, I think it's really, really glaring, and a lot of animation at this time and this period was when they were doing it. There's, there's a load of stuff that kind of yeah. looks really, really bad. There's a show called Demon Bane, something like that. I mean, that right. looks absolutely horrible. I've not seen that one. One that comes to mind for me was Samurai Seven, which is like a kind of Seven Samurai retelling. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of, it maybe wasn't quite as bad as this, but there been CG. I don't if I recall, wasn't terrible, but it, again, it stuck out, like the sore thumb against yeah. the more traditional looking stuff. Yeah, I haven't seen that for about 15 years, so yeah, same, yeah. I, I can't... I'd have to review that. I'd have to I, go back and have a look at that But I think one. it does It does kind of stick out quite but a bit. I would bit probably expect it, again, because it's from that era, so I would mm. probably expect it to, um, yeah. to stand out. Good series, though. I really enjoyed it when I watched it, and it's one of yeah. those things I've always been meaning to go back and watch again. I assume, yeah, yeah. It's on Netflix yeah. at the moment, and um, all right, it's yeah, yeah. Um, but um, getting back to uh, to <laughs> Macro Zero, though, <laughs> um, for all the sort of detractions we've talked about, you know, for all the um, for all the minuses, uh, there are some pluses as well. I do like some other elements of the story and it's kind of pacing. I think it's actually not badly paced for like a five episode over here. Yeah, I can kind of agree that from a pacing point of view, yes, I think it it's paced reasonably well. Mm-hmm. And it kind of chips along from one episode to the next. Again, in a fairly logical manner, you know, it kind of gives room to, to build some of the characters up. For me, I just don't I just don't like the story very much, to be mm-hmm. honest. Like I say, I struggle with it going on and on about the aliens and the, the Birdman and the mysticism of it. I like some of the um, direction of it, and like you know, the, the soundtrack's quite good as well. So there's some decent kind of artistry behind it in terms of mm. like how some of the scenes are framed, and you know, there's just a lot of things like you say about the story that I quite jarring. But I like the characterization in it, though. Yeah, I mean, I have to say the characterization is for me is the best thing about it. Yes, I think there are some absolutely. good. Um, you know, the stuff between Roy Fokker and Dr. Turner and their history. Yeah. The, the love triangle between Shin Mao and Sarah. So most of the action takes place on this remote island, which features these sisters, uh, Sarah and Mao. When the fight kind of comes to them, um, you know, it takes place in, in the ocean and whatever. And um, Sarah initially is sort of very scared because there's this kind of influx of sort of outsiders and and everything into yeah. the island and she's very protective of of what she's got and, and what the this tribe is on the island yeah she's, she's very protective of her way of life you know she's very superstitious and she feels that technology in the outside world if that's introduced to the island is going to bring nothing but um doom to them basically in a similar way to the Zentradi in previous series, they fear culture is going to contaminate them she she feels that you know civilization being brought to the island is going to change everything that's a really good point because they are it's it is like this sort of contamination of the the mm. modern world on their sort of very traditional way of life and and Sarah's really really keen to protect that and maintain that whereas mm. Mal is a bit more open minded and when yeah. she gets exposed to some of this stuff her eyes are opened a bit 
Absolutely. I mean, she's the younger and more curious one, and she's eager to know more about the outside world. She's interested in the outside world, but it's not just that. It's the fact that she's a young girl who's coming to realise, you know, her feelings, and yes. she's been attracted to a boy for the first time. Yes. It's the fact that that whole world has been forbidden to her, it's been closed off from her, yes. and she wants to know more about it. That's right, and she's very inquisitive now, mm-hmm. um, whereas even though Sarah isn't particularly... Whereas Sarah isn't a particularly old person, you know, she's only mm-hmm. sort of really a sort of someone in her late teens or something, maybe early 20s. But mm-hmm. even though she's had a glimpse because there has been a visitor to the island and, and she's kind of almost scarred from from what happened that there. previous experience, experience, yeah. Linking to what you said about that, there's a plot point involving a radio that was left behind by this previous visitor to the island yes. and Shin wants to fix it. And Sarah doesn't want it to be fixed because she thinks that's going to bring you know, the kind of wrath of the outside world down on them. Yes, that's right. And and that will give them this link back to the outside world, which has yeah. long been dormant, um, you know, and she was and quite... what she fears. And exactly what she fears, because unfortunately, you know, the modern world and the events of the modern world has, has brought the world to them, and they, uh, yeah. you know, and they can't avoid it. And she resists as much as possible. But, you know, it's like this sort of unavoidable fate that's yeah. sort of befell the island and therefore befell her. And she's kind of powerless. And it's quite interesting to see how she really, really fights it and really struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, and she never quite really accepts, you know, the, the change, does she? Even though when it's... Yeah. Even with the like this devastation that happens on the island, she's mm-hmm. she's still, you know, really sad still, about it. Yeah, and she's still completely, like, you know, clinging to her old beliefs, no matter what, what sort of happens. Yeah. She still hangs on to those beliefs because that's part of who she is. And the other thing is you get quite an interesting dynamic between the, the two sisters as well, because they both kind of fall in love with the same boy, mm-hmm. um, you know, with Shin. And they both kind of realise, and it's certainly more apparent to Mao that they, they start to have this rivalry. And there's a bit of yeah. kind of ribbing sort of, and mm. sort of sisterly sort of joshing and, um, yeah. and everything between the two of them fighting over Shin. And, mm-hmm. you know, they become love rivals and but at the same time, they're sisters. And, and that, I think, quite a realistic portrayal of how Definitely, I think yeah. siblings behave in, in that sort of situation. And that's yeah. quite nice. And actually, it's quite a good characterization with, mm-hmm. with Mao, how she actually the sadness she feels when she realizes she's kind of losing out to Sarah and stuff as well. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, I think she's a bit more sort of, despite being the younger one, she seems to kind of yeah. realise what's happening a bit more. Sarah's a bit more guarded about her feelings perhaps because of her yes. yeah. religious side. It is really interesting how that sort of dynamic plays across the series. There's there's a really funny scene where it, Shin initially arrives on the island and he points a stick at Sarah yeah. like a sharp and stick like a spear. Yeah. Um, thinking he's threatening her to sort of, because you know there's a lot of sort of hoo ha yeah. about his arrival, and it turns out that he's it's actually an old custom that you point this stick at the person you're going to spend the rest yes. of your life <laughs> with. So he's unwittingly committed a kind of cultural faux pas yeah. and kind of taken her as his bride without meaning to. <laughs> yeah, little touches like that are, you know, are what is what is really the only kind of good thing, I think, about mm. this OVA, yeah, that kind of Absolutely, yeah, I agree with that. The, the characterisation is, is definitely the, the meat of it for me. Yeah, because Mel, I often feel, is a bit like Ishtar in some mm. ways from Macross 2. You know, there's that kind of, at the end, there's that kind of, real sadness that she's lost help to mm-hmm. someone else you know um yeah like the the better rival which um you know which is which is i think is very well portrayed 
definitely. Speaking of characterization, I mean, I really like the scene between Ares and Roy that gives you more insight into Roy's character. Yeah. Because he phones her up uh, one night and he talks about his friend Michael. Yes. Uh, he talks about this guy he knew called Michael who knew both of them. He asks her if she knew that he'd died in the first bombing during the Unification Wars. And he goes on to say about how it's not logic, you know, there's there's no logic to war. And he, he says it in quite a sort of understated way, like the voice actor um, Akira Kamiya does a really good job in that point, I think. Yeah. Because he sort of says it in a way with a lot of poignancy behind it. And you, you, you get to see a bit of a different side, side of Roy, because the delivery, the very purposeful delivery of that line shows how much it's affected Roy as a person. Yeah. And despite absolutely. his love of, love of flying... He really hates war, and that was something that was touched on in the original series. And Dr. Turner, Ares Turner, she's surprised to see him involved in war, but you get the sense of the fact that he really wants to take care of like the young yeah. pilots who are under him, who are training Yeah, him, absolutely. And make sure that they're not kind of exposed to the sort of horrors of it, really, and he doesn't kind of lose anyone else. Yeah, because there's a bit where um, they're with Shin, and Roy is, I can't remember if he's teasing or, or busting Shin's balls or something like that. Or he's being very sort of bravado, actually. Mm. And um, Ares kind of puts him in his place by saying to Shin, he wasn't always like this. He was actually yeah. a really, really shy young man mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. You know, and that and that's quite good. Is that in the TV series, it's I know he falls for uh, the one girl, but he always kind of he's always seen as being super confident and whatever. Yeah. And then actually, maybe a time before that. Actually, mm-hmm. he was a shy, quite normal person, and and you know the the bravado and the the confidence and arrogance came a bit, you know that later. Came, came a bit later and over time. Yeah. So, and I mean, it shows his sort of softer, more vulnerable side. And there's a bit more to him than the kind of mm. macho flyboy who likes to chase the ladies all the time. Yeah, and maybe he's hardened over, you know. And when we we see him in the original TV series, he's that bit further on. He's he's that he's changed, you know. And this is. Because he's obviously one of the most sort of beloved characters of of the original TV series, and to try yeah. and flesh him out a little bit more and say, and mm-hmm. it's a bit like you know, he, I know he died twenty years ago, but we haven't forgotten about Roy Fokker. Yeah, I guess with it being a twentieth anniversary project, they kind of felt the need to stick yeah. a classic character in there, and that's one of my favourite things about the show are the scenes with Roy. To be honest with you. Yeah, absolutely. And I also want to talk about the. The female characters in this because they get a pretty rough ride really you know yes, it's like yeah some pretty awful things happen to some characters you really like in this over yeah i mean i won't go into like a lot of depth into the spoilers but let's just say not everyone makes it and it's kind of heavy on the female side in terms of their casualties yeah, yeah I, I know because when again trying not to spoil too much but there's an event kind of very near the end of episode five which again almost shapes roy as this almost can almost understand his sort of tragic figure mm. and why he is a little bit like he is in in the TV series, you know. Yeah. He's, he's a bit unlucky at, at times, isn't he? So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's had some... Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's definitely had some pretty bad luck in his life. Absolutely. So it's, you know, it carries on and um, does flesh that out a little bit. And that's... For me, that is kind of the only good thing because, again, there's the bit where while they're fighting the Birdman and it reaches the end of they damage it and then it kind of like folds away mm. and it's like again it's like well you're kind of retconning the, the whole fold thing just to before mm. 
Yeah, there doesn't so, seem any point in adding that, really. To no. Me. It's kind of like, you know, you've already taken a big sort of uh, gamble with the sort of mythology and adding this retcon in and, you know, mentioning all the stuff about the Birdman to then do that as well. Yeah. Seems like a bit of a double whammy that's kind of unnecessary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, when it gets to that, that point, I think it all kind of does go downhill. Because it's been such a sort of... There's a lot of stuff that's quite sedate in the series. There's a lot of character stuff. There's a lot of scenes on the island where, you know, characters are sitting around talking and things. Yeah. It's not all action all the time. So to no. suddenly... And it doesn't really seem to have a particularly good kind of, you know, slow burn towards all that. It just seems to throw it all in towards yeah. the end, to be honest with you. And that's and that's where I get about it tries to you know it tries to have this pretense of building up this mystery around the Aphos and the Birdman because mm. at the beginning of episode two there's like a recap of the Birdman because an old man keeps on telling you the story doesn't he? he's like yeah, sitting that's around right. the yeah. campfire and he tells you the legend and it keeps on getting reiterated throughout the uh, series you keep on hearing a bit more of the story and. It yeah. sort of repeats it a few times throughout the series. It does, and and that scene, that bit at the beginning of episode two, it kind of reminds me of Bad Max Beyond Thunderdome, where there's mm. that scene where Max is telling them about, you know, the, the planes kids, and things, the yeah. planes and the skyscrapers. Talking about technology, is they basically, yeah, because it's all stuff they've only seen in drones and stuff, because they're like they've been born after the after apocalypse. the apocalypse. Yeah, you know, there's the fable of. Moro Moro Land, or I can't remember what they call yeah, it I think, now. I it's, think it's called something like that, yeah, you're right. You know, and there's this mystical place, and only people our age or, will remember it, but those um, things, red goggles that you put the discs in. Oh, yeah, the, um, the U-Masters. The U-Masters, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah, won't have this. It. Yeah, pre, pre-digital toys, kids. Um, <laughs> this was literally a disc with an image Images. for each eye and then you clipped it and it went round and you, you yeah got these usually images from popular movies and cartoons from the time that's I had, right yeah I had Transformers when I was a kid yeah I seem to have various <laughs> Star Wars ones I seem to remember maybe E.T. or something like that so you know they've got those sort of things and then Max comes and says yeah yeah this stuff all existed and it's all gone they, you know it kind of really reminds me of that scene it, it, mm. you know it's got that kind of feel about it so they kind of really lay on the fable and and everything of it and mm. and then all of a sudden it kind of really escalates up and through the sort of latter bit of episode four when they let the nuclear weapon off and then yeah. the fight with the birdman in episode five and it doesn't feel whereas in like macross plus it feels like a fairly logical e- escalation yeah. You don't feel shortchanged by anything in Macros Plus. You feel like the the story's taken its natural course. Whereas yeah. with Zero I sort of feel like it's got an end it's got an ending which kinda says, you know, the day is saved but at what cost? Yeah. You know, because like a lot of people die and yeah. some pretty terrible things happen to characters you've probably gone quite attached to. And that doesn't necessarily feel too sort of natural to the ending of this over here, really. No, to me. no, it doesn't doesn't feel like the logical place to go with it. I mean, when I watched the first episode, when I first saw it, I couldn't have envisaged it ending that way. No. I really struggle with it. I struggled with it ten years ago. And to be Mm. honest, I struggle with it again. It's not a story that particularly captured me. And I think almost it's made worse by the fact that I've watched it next to the other two OVAs. Yeah. Because, as you know, you said about Macross 2, it was actually far better than I remembered it. (laughs) And same um, here, yeah, like I, like know, I said I as well. I actually really quite enjoyed it and everything. And mm. then Macross Plus is just a, you know, is a true timeless. timeless masterpiece. And then you've got this. And 
for me, nothing really, apart from some of the characterization and, and some of the character development, nothing works for me in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. I sort of feel like, you know, I like the fact that they tried to give flesh out uh, Roy a little bit more. And, mm. you know, I wish there'd been a, a bit more about the Unification Wars and that sort of thing in there. Mm. Even if it's just a bit more told to you by dialogue. Yeah. You know, like, it would have been more interesting. And I, and I would have much preferred something like that because I think it would have been nice to see something without aliens. Yeah. You know, something about human conflict spurred on by the aliens. I think that would have been quite an interesting thing. Just because it would have been such a departure. There's a lot of things that don't quite work. And I love, as much as I like the characters in it, I do think there's some really good characters in this show. Um, the story just isn't quite there. So let's talk um, briefly about Zero's mecha design. Apparently it was by both Shoji Kawamori and a guy called Junya Ishigaki. Mm-hmm. Now, I wonder how much was Kawamori and how much was Ishigaki, because if I'm honest, the designs are a lot more generic in this than in past entries. Yes. Um, I kind of feel like in the original show, you could very easily distinguish the different models of Valkyrie, and they were all kind of iconic. Yeah. And not just the Valkyries, but things like the Destroids, like the Destroid Tomahawk and the Destroid Monster and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And also, Macross 2 had the Steel Siren, and plus, as we've talked about, had the YF-19 and 21. Yes, Which are both really good designs. But nothing sticks out too much to me in this, though. No, and I wonder if part of that is because it's meant to be a prequel. It's meant to be a very Mm. early... Yeah. They're kind of... It's before everything evolved, you know, it's the original kind of design. But, Mm. yeah. So it could be a purposeful thing. I mean, they they talk about the uh, this prototype... Uh, Valkyrie in it, which um, Roy's sort of uh, getting these cadets to test, isn't he? So yeah, exactly. You see that you see that in action, and that is a lot more kind of bland looking than what came later. So it could have been a more purposeful thing, I guess, to make them look a bit more primitive. Yes. And not as not as sort of cool looking. Yeah, but the thing is, though, it's and I think it's that, but I kind of see where you're going because the, the thing is, it's a Macross show, so it has cool fighter jets and cool designs. And especially when you think where this came after, you mm. know, plus after two, yeah. after the original show, after Do You, you Remember Love, still make them look pretty good, yeah. Yeah, you know, you've, you've had um, sort of Macross Seven as well, and so you've had you know mm. an evolution of the of the Valkyrie design and that and everything as well. And then you go back to this very mm. you know, back to basics kind of design. It kind of feels a bit disappointing because yeah, it's kind of know, a step back. Yeah, it does feel like a step back because when you when you look at all the cool mecha designs that you've you've had, you know, mm. in the preceding yeah. twenty years, you know, this mm. compared to the original show, um, you know, there's a lot of very cool mecha designs, and it's a mecha show, and the mecha designs are a bit boring. You know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so it's yeah, it definitely doesn't stick out too much, and it's a bit of a shame, especially. Um, you know, having just watched Plus, which, as yeah. we discussed, has some fantastic ones. <laughs> yeah, in. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, even the antagonist mecha and their fighters and that don't. I don't yeah. know, they don't really do much for me, to be perfectly yeah, honest. Yeah, Ivanov, um, the sort of Roy's kind yeah. of rival. Um, his doesn't look particularly great either. No. Um, you know, it's kind of, you know, they're all they're all kind of just sort of interchangeable, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's a bit of a, that's a bit of a shame. Yeah, because there's nothing there's nothing memorable about that. In this, mm, yeah. the, the, the mecha design at all. I don't like think. I say, nothing, nothing you know, massively sticks out too, too no. much. No, in that respect, it's quite disappointing, really, is that they couldn't mm. do anything. Um, and maybe that's, uh, you know, maybe they hem themselves in a little bit trying to do a prequel, you know. Mm. That's why I don't like, you know, when they try and retcon and go back to yeah. stuff because it's, 
you know, so much has passed, and then you go back and try and do something. Uh, mm. It only it only makes a rod for your own back, I think. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, not not a not a great one for uh, mecha design. No, I've, I highly agree. In such close comparison with all the other Macross anime, I'm mm-hmm. kind of like, actually, it doesn't fit. It doesn't look right. The story doesn't make sense. Mm. You know, it, it's trying to do something that's, I think, a bit too alien for, if you pardon yeah. the pun, for <laughs> Macross. Um, yeah, and it just, yeah, it just doesn't, and I, I just... Yeah, I just can't warm to it at all. Um, yeah, it's it's a difficult one because, um, like I say, you know, it's I don't think it's completely all bad, but the story isn't very logical in it, and that's at the end of the day what I've got to kind of rate on, really. Yeah, you know, for that reason, it's it's uh, it's a hard one to rate this. What would you give it? I'm I'd give it a three, to be honest. Really? Uh, I, I I just I don't enjoy this. I I don't I don't I like see, it. See, I, it starts off okay for me but then the more it gets on the more it kind of starts to get on my nerves a little bit i would probably say something like 4.5 or 5 the story is what i've got to give the meat of the rating on so i'm going to say about 4.5 for me i think yeah for me there's nothing to recommend this other than if you want to watch all of the franchise then yeah you've just got to see this to kind of understand the highs and lows of the franchise really yeah you know so <laughs> but then again i mean i always encourage people to watch things and make their own mind up i mean you you might find you get more mileage out of it than us you know teach their own but uh definitely it's the um the weakest one for me i've not seen frontier or delta mind you well i've, I've reserved judgment on those no, we'll get to no those i've ones not seen um i've not seen frontier or delta either so um i think during the sort of 2000s i'd seen enough Macross that I didn't like mm. to like to put, you off. to put me off watching Frontier. So because I, mm. I hadn't seen Frontier, then I didn't see Delta. So right, yeah. So we'll see what Seven brings. And uh, indeed, yeah, it'll be interesting to review that because it yeah. is a bit of an oddball show. It um, is an oddball show, yeah. So yeah, I'm very curious to see um to see how my opinion has changed or not. Yeah, of that. I think it'll be quite an entertaining review that one. I've just got a feeling it's going to be pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the end of our reviews. Another interesting discussion on the Macross franchise. So that's part two of our retrospective done. So as I said, part three of the retrospective will be the Macross 7 series. And we'll get to that in sort of another sort of three episodes or so. So next time on the podcast, we will be reviewing 1978 super robot show, Daikango, the Guardian of Space. And just before we go, in, in the time that we've recorded this, we, we talked about the Pat Labour collection going out of print sentai are now doing a limited run 
it just got announced the other day so uh so you yeah. still have a chance to go and get it but apparently it is a very limited run so um once it's gone it is truly gone so. yeah absolutely the uh the joys of uh recording things in segments you get contradicted by latest news yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where to find us right you can find us on twitter at retro mecca you can find this podcast on spotify itunes soundcloud streaker on most podcast hosting services, just search for Retro Mecha Podcast. We have a companion blog to the podcast, retromechapodcast.wordpress.com, and also we have an email address, retromechapodcast at gmail.com. Craig, tell us where we can find your blog. Um, you can find my blog on animeheadsretroworld.wordpress.com, and I'm on Twitter at animeheadsretro. I'm also on ANUK forums. Um, which is Scrambled Valkyrie. And you can find my other podcast, Retro Anime Podcast, on the same hosts and services as this one. Just search for Retro Anime Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Retro Anime. And again, you can find me on the Anime UK News Forums. My username is Orgun, as in Detonator Orgun. So that's the end of it. Another good discussion, Craig. Absolutely, yeah. It's so, been great talking but... Yeah, another great discussion. Right, so until next time... Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. The opening and closing theme music to the podcast is Molten Alloy from Purple Planet Music. All other music used within the podcast is copyrighted to its respective creators.